Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hey everyone, I am your host Kate Kavanaugh and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. (laughs) I don't know how many times I have to do that before I feel like I know what I'm doing and I don't think I'm going to edit it out. I'm just going to let myself hang out there. I have just been on an exploration of all kinds of things lately and one of my biggest explorations, and I have a solo cast that's going to really dig into this, has been around this concept of decentralization. When I look at what is happening within the cultural sphere, what I see is that a lot has been centralized. We have centralized regulations for how we process food and taken that away from small communities, oftentimes making it harder to produce awesome, regeneratively raised meat. We have centralized food in a way that has led to an abundance of hyperpalatable processed foods owned by only a couple of companies that are deep into vertical integration with pharmaceutical companies, which I I think makes a, a pretty difficult situation if They're incentivized for the food to make you sick, and then they have the cure for that sickness. That does not feel like a hamster wheel I want to get into. And just been curious about the way I view some of local food as a way to really decentralize. It's not coming from Whole Foods. It's not coming from Safeway or Fry's or Aldi or all of these different things. It's actually like the land is being held by real people and the food is being grown by local people within your local system. And when you spend money within that system, they are then spending money also in that local economy. And I think there's a lot to be said for this concept of what it means to decentralize. And as I began really exploring decentralizing our food system, which never should have been centralized in the first place, right? I mean, that's kind of one of the big questions. It's like, well, why was this centralized in the first place? Decentralized currency naturally came up, and I think that there's something that's sort of percolating in the collective unconscious around this idea of decentralization. And so I started kind of asking some questions about Bitcoin and about alternative currency methods, and I'm still asking those questions. This is just a sticking our toes in the water of looking at the intersection of finance and food. It is what I am calling a sort of decentralization 101. And I'm going to state the obvious, which is, of course, I am not giving financial advice within the context of this podcast. This is all for you to research. And I think that again, this is just kind of a first little foray into it. And I'm hoping to have some other guests on to sort of explore this and to just continue to look at this. And one of the things that I've talked a lot about within the context of sustainability 
is this idea that we talk so much about environmental sustainability or about health span and and living, you know, living our our health out, right? Having having a healthy body right up until when we die as opposed to a lifespan which right now often looks like getting sick and and having your body begin to break down in your 60s but still living into your 80s and so as i think about some of these things as i think about some of the ways that we are cultivating environmental sustainability or longevity in our health we also have to be considering financial sustainability. And right now, I have no idea what that looks like or means. This podcast is an exploration and an exploration alone. But what I see within the agricultural model is that we are up against some really big hurdles. Uh, scale is something that makes a lot of these businesses work because we're working on incredibly tight margins. You know, when I talk to farmers and ranchers, oftentimes we're looking at one to 3% margins across the board. That includes in places like butcher shops. I can attest to this as a butcher shop owner. And so scale becomes really important. And so does beginning to break down our, our, financial and economic models and to explore what different models look like. And I think to this effect, this exploration of Bitcoin in particular and, and cryptocurrency, which we don't really get into, we just kind of stick to Bitcoin within this, this podcast, is really important and exploring ideas like Charles Eisenstein's sacred economics, where he really breaks down what an entirely different system could look like. And so I think exploring all of these different avenues and trying to put them together and discover what makes sense or, or what's new or what's even just interesting to look at is really important to explore financial sustainability within environmentally sustaina sustainable models. And one of the things I was really curious about is just how does how does currency work? How did we get here? And so this is something that we really explore in a, a longer podcast, but this is an important one to me. How, how did we get here? And always for me, that question helps me understand where we are. And so we explore some of that on this podcast and we explore some of the fascinating overlaps between Bitcoin and beef. And there are a lot of them. And it was interesting to sort of identify some pain points where things start to fall apart, both in finance and in health, as it's related to our consumption of animal meats. And so this was just a really fun exploration. Again, not advice. So, you know, keep your, keep your, critical thinking and your autonomy with you. I hope you all enjoy this fantastic podcast with Tristan Scott, who just wrote the fantastic book, Bitcoin and Beef. And I'm thinking about this episode as decentralization 101. And I'm hoping that we get to some, some upper level classes in this. 
hope everybody enjoys and that you're having a great day. If this podcast resonates, if it got your curiosity going, please share it on social media. Leave us a review or a rating on iTunes or Spotify. And just thank you always for being here. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I really do. So, hi. It's so great to have you here. I am just incredibly grateful that you're coming on the podcast and you're exploring something that I'm super curious about. I don't have a huge background in Bitcoin, but it's something my husband and I have been discussing. And so I'd love to know a little bit about your background before we sort of dig into Bitcoin and beef. Absolutely, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to dig into you know the topics of Bitcoin and beef and kind of a long-form conversation and uh, yeah, my background definitely is, is a unique one. So how I kind of got into both areas of, you know, decentralized finance and health, we can touch upon. So really, in terms of health, I was always kind of pretty healthy. You know, my mom, uh, she's, she's of European descent. So, you know, dinners at home, home cooked meals, not really full of uh, family full of soda or, or processed foods was, awesome. you know, better than most. Um, and I played a lot of sports growing up, um, always very active. So, so that was helpful. And, uh, I played soccer in college, which is kind of where, where the story starts and always super active, but definitely health started to deteriorate in, in college, being a, an engineering student simultaneously as a, uh, an athlete. But I sustained kind of one too many concussions, uh, most of them as a result of sport. Um, the last one, uh, not due to sport, but kind of pushed me over this threshold. Um, your brain does a really good job of, of compensating the issues uh, for when you have, you know, multiple brain injuries and concussions. And yeah. this is a huge, huge area. So yeah, T- it, I, TBIs, traumatic brain injury, things like that, I presume. And it, they come with a, a wild list of, of sort of integrated whole body symptoms. Yeah. So if, if you've ever had a concussion, you, you may be familiar with, with some of these symptoms, um, daily headaches, extreme fatigue, you know, irritability, sensitivity to light, sound um, are, are big kind of main symptoms. And uh, for me, this last one, I really didn't know I was, I was concussed until a couple months later. And these symptoms basically persisted uh, for an extremely long period of time, multiple months before I saw a neurologist. And then I kind of got the classic, you know, just take it easy. Um, your brain will, you know, figure out how to heal itself. You may not ever be back to your normal self, but the best thing to do is just take it easy and try to slowly get back in your routine. Um, and, and at the time, you know, it's, it's really hard going from, you know, a student athlete, engineering student, kind of, I'm definitely a very go personality and, and get things done. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, I wasn't able to exercise, wasn't able to walk across campus without being extremely fatigued was barely able to use, you know, the only energy I had to, to just finish my coursework and at subpar, you know, levels and uh, make it through the semester, thankfully. But it was really, you know, hard to hear that. And uh, kind of eventually I just I just got fed up. And, you know, a year later or nine to 12 months later, I still had most of these symptoms, you know, daily headaches because I wasn't doing anything different. So nothing was really getting better. And uh, yeah, I decided to take it upon myself, you know, fortunately for me, because I have that kind of go-getter personality, I decided this, this wasn't acceptable. There had to be a way to, you know, get back to a better place because even at that point, 
if I was, you know, 10, 20% better, it would be a huge difference in my day to day, day to day life. And little did I know, yeah, how far I would, I would go with that. So so I started reading books. And so you kind of took the tact of do your own research. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's a lot, uh, you're a lot more committed when, you know, your entire life is, uh, you know, on the line, your, your energy, your vitality, everything that you want to do, what you'd love to do is, is really on the line. So it was kind of a, a no, no brainer decision for me in terms of committing everything I knew into reading books, diving into the podcast, YouTube videos. But, you know, what I didn't know and what most people don't know is there's this absurd amount of free information or very low cost information for healing, for health and for optimizing your life. And, and that's so amazing and kind of went down this rabbit hole, you know, started listening to yeah Ben Greenfield podcasts. Um, For example, we talked about that before. It's a great starting place, reading all the books, the YouTube channels, understanding how the brain works, how health works, what's wrong with our current diet, our current lifestyles. And, like I said, I always had a somewhat healthier lifestyle probably than the average American being very active and eating mostly, you know, at least foods that I was cooking um, myself, not as processed, but still sometimes. And then, yeah, I decided to, you know, overhaul my, my lifestyle, really focus on, on stress reduction, sleep quality, uh, diet that is absolutely free of, of processed foods and then slowly um, work in some modalities to, to help heal my brain. And, you know, over a course of a couple months, I, I really made some, some strides and uh, was able to get back into exercising. And then from there, my, my healing and my progress just, just kind of exponentially rose. And, yeah, from there I was hooked. You know, once, once you have a life-changing experience in, in health, you owe everything to not only continue learning, but spread that education and knowledge to others. So that was about three, three and a half years ago. And, and from there, I mean, my knowledge has just continued to increase. My lifestyle habits have continued to be fine tuned. And I feel better now than I have ever in my life, which is fantastic. And, you know, I never thought I would, I would be in such a place. So it's been super rewarding. And I'm, I'm just super thankful that I stumbled upon such a fantastic community and of knowledge. Yeah, man, I feel the same way. I did I did a lot of my own research within that and I healed I healed myself and I, I literally feel better than I ever have in my whole life, uh, just through the work that I've done. And so I really, really understand that. And I know you even explored and we can get into this later, but you explored carnivore diets, I think, for brain health. Is that correct? So actually I explored ketogenic diet um sure. first. And that was Makes sense. uh yeah, exactly. So I kind of got, I went down the keto rabbit hole. Basically, I, I, you know, read a lot about how, you know, having a low carb diet, highly, you know, restricted, so you can get, you know, very high ketone levels yep. in the blood. It's very anti-inflammatory. Just energy for your brain. Yes, exactly. And, and that really helped uh, a ton because, uh, yeah, we know that um, the glucose utilization of your brain is really a huge issue post-TBI. Um, post concussion. And uh, sometimes it's there's just a threshold, right? Because obviously your brain is, is such a large user of, of glucose, you know, uses the most um, per weight of, of, of energy, in, of energy, exactly. So that's the biggest reason that you have all these fatigue issues when you have a concussion. And uh, especially blood glucose spikes, uh, you know, even if you're healthy, and you have a large blood glucose spike, 
you, you get that, you know, sign of fatigue. So when you're concussed and your brain is, is not optimally functioning, you have even more so of a detrimental effect. So I, I went on a strict ketogenic diet for about four months and I was, did not break it once. Like I was super committed and I felt fantastic, you know, super level headed. Um, at that point, the headaches were kind of going away anyway, but that pretty much cleared out any, any daily headaches I had. My energy was super even keel and, and level and, yeah, it was, it was fantastic, but I definitely now I don't practice such a strict ketogenic diet. I'm more so and more strategic with, with my carb intake, um, you know, post workout or, or at night. And, but I definitely still utilize that knowledge of, of carbohydrate glucose yeah. spikes to be productive. You know, I'm not going to eat like a stack of pancakes or, you know, have a, a, you know, a lot of raw honey, which is where I get a lot of my carbs from for breakfast yep. or lunch at work because yep. it's just not, not conducive to, you know, productivity. And, and that's what I like um, a lot. And I had that metabolic machinery, you know, the ketogenic community calls it to really use fat as, as an alternative energy source. So, so that was a big one for me um, that, that helped a lot. I love that. I, I feel very similarly. Carbs are for bedtime to help me wind down. Uh, I need a little bit more of a carbohydrate load because I'm a woman. Makes it a little bit different, but I, I feel really similarly. And then you, you're also an engineer. Is that correct? Yeah. So I went to school. I have my master's uh, in electrical engineering. So I, I currently work in, in the semiconductor industry. But yeah, that, that's a good transition, um, to, uh, yeah, how I got into, you know, Bitcoin and, and crypto because, yeah. Before we go there, I actually wonder if you'll play this thought experiment with me because as I was preparing for this podcast, I had to think a lot about currency in a way that I hadn't really considered current. Like, what is currency? Why do we have it in the first place? And how did we get here to this place where we're discussing alternative? currencies. And as I was sitting at the breakfast table and talking with my husband about it, we were talking about, you know, in a hunter gatherer situation, you know, and many tens of thousands of years ago, the main currency in many ways would have been food, uh, that we are, we are bartering beings by, by nature to barter for things that we don't have and to trade, uh, maybe across tribes or even within tribes. And so I just think it's really interesting, uh, you know, food as currency, or at least the impetus for that first currency where you need food. And I actually, I recently did a podcast where we discussed salt and the history of salt, which has been through multiple points in history, been used as currency. I mean, that's where the word salary comes from. It's how Roman soldiers were paid was in salt because it is necessary for life. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts about this sort of genesis of currency. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, there's so much connection between our, our food system and monetary systems as, as uh, we're going to talk a lot about. But what, what's interesting is, is, yeah, for the longest time, people, you know, used whatever was in demand uh, as a currency and, and they could trade. So, so, yeah, definitely a lot of bartering, a lot of trading going on. Someone has, you know, meat, someone has fruit, someone has just, you know, shoes, clothing, uh, definitely was traded. But, but the problem with using food and items as currency is um, you, you hit a point where you may want fruit from me, but I don't want meat from you. And then, okay, maybe yes. you can bring in a, a third party to kind of 
they want the meat from you and, and they're willing to uh, be the middleman and, and that. But that's that's kind of where the origin of, of currency came from. And, and that yeah. characteristic of, of money is, is extremely important or else, you know, you can't really use uh, everyday commodities for currency. And, and that's the reason. So, but we it probably a took a long time. Means. Yeah. Of yeah. Exchange. Universal means of exchange. Yeah. But it probably took a, a long time for that to happen, which is which is really interesting. And uh, yeah, overall, um, I think that's always been, you know, extremely connected between the, the food and uh, financial systems, because that's, uh, you know, the most important means of uh, uh, money is, is to purchase things so you can survive on a daily basis. And uh, I think people are realizing that again more and more Ooh. today um, with yeah. the supply chain, you know, crises. But yeah, um, the, the history of, of money goes back very, very far and, you know, using things, uh, first food and, and goods to some common scarce item, maybe seashells, um, or, or some, you know, of course, any metal was, was, was used in, in very many traditional or ancient societies. Um, and that's kind of where it all starts. And, uh, it all starts with, with scarcity and, and how, difficult it is to increase that supply of, of money because yeah if, if you're using you know for example seashells on, on an island for, for for currency because that is something that you know maybe a specific seashell is, is rare on that island but the next island over has you know an abundant amount of, of these seashells they could and they have a ship they could come to your island and, and crash your your economy. Yeah. Uh, very, very quickly. <laughs> uh, so that's the problem with, with a lot of uh, money uh, or currencies that, that were used in the past. That's a problem with a lot of uh, the um, less difficult to produce metals such as copper or even silver is that, you know, to a certain extent, once uh, technology had, had advanced enough, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to expand the, the copper supply. It's also easy to uh, manipulate copper from a chemical structure standpoint. Mm. Um, and that's why all these, yeah. So, so they would kind of taint, you know, their, their coins, they would say maybe it's silver and, and then they cut it with copper or, or other, uh, inferior metals that were cheaper to make. And that's kind of how they used to debase their currency back in the day. They didn't have, you know, uh, necessarily, you know, a, a digital money printer like we do today. So they had to get creative in, in terms of, you know, chemically altering it from a cost perspective, but then still using it to hold the theoretical same value. And that's how all roads pointed to gold, because gold is the hardest to, you know, extract of all the precious metals, but it's also the most chemically stable. So, you know, that's why it's very popular for jewelry because, you know, you know, 100, 500 years gold is still going to be, you know, hold its, um, you know, hold its structure chemically and, and not erode or, or corrode huh. like other metals can. So that's really why gold became, you know, the, the, the standard for, for currency or, or the what backed currencies um, is because it's, chemically viable it's hard to you know produce on a moment's notice more and that is 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 why it's yeah the the standard for for currency and uh it it still is the hardest money physically that uh we probably have in in the world but of course now we have a new player in the game 
Yes. And I want to get to that new player. Um, but first, and I love that you, you brought that in because I was actually, I, I, my husband and I went to, into some deep thought experiments on what determines value. And so you kind of explaining the value of gold within the, the lens of the monetary system, that was, that was really helpful for me. Um, and I think in that, in that same way, so, and I know that a lot of my listeners are very familiar with regenerative agriculture, but I think oftentimes whenever we're explaining a, a new concept, it's good to explain the system or the paradigm, the old paradigm, right? So if Bitcoin is our new paradigm, there's this old paradigm of how currency currently operates. And I'm just curious, and I think especially right now, and I mean, as we're doing this, uh, uh, it has not been a good week for the market, for Bitcoin, for inflation. <laughs> um, it's been a pretty wild ride right in the, uh, in the middle of June. Um, if you could explain how our current currency system functions. Yeah, I mean, we've ha it's been a historical week, so don't don't underplay <laughs> that. Um, with uh, yeah, the highest uh, interest rate hike since 1994, yes. and uh, yeah, we we could be technically in the midst of of watching the the very decline of of the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. I think so we are. It's uh, it's I really crazy. Um, I was talking about it with coworkers this week. I was. I'm I'm actually excited to see how this all plays out, but yeah, for you know yeah. what history the 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 current currency system is yeah it's it's a complex one because it's it's been dynamically changing kind of by the by the decade on on what policy is, but in order to understand what we do you know maybe nowadays you, you have to go back and and understand uh, what what happened before that and in the nineteen before the 1900s really the turn of the century where this all kind of changed. And, and I talked about earlier how all roads kind of pointed to gold as, you know, the, the standard for, for being the most sound currency, the most sound money. And uh, that's because it's, it's chemically, it's, it's difficult to alter. Um, if you do want to increase the supply, um, it's very expensive. So it's, it's not really worth it. In contrast, if you wanted to rapidly increase the supply of copper or silver, um, you could do that. Um, so you could easily corner the market and then create a giant bubble, which has happened many times in the past. So we, we know that's the downside of, of both silver and uh, copper as, as currencies or as what's backing the currency. So gold kind of was the standard and, you know, the gold standard, what it was is that, you know, central banks of, of large countries, large global economic powers, they they would hold gold in in their you know central banks as the the country's currency and and for hundreds of years you know other countries still still held silver you know uh, China was was on silver for a long period of time and that kind of bit them in the butt eventually but overall they would use you know these metals uh, as their form of currency to fund you know economic actions in in their country and then internationally. But there was the introduction of, of fiat currencies, which is kind of um, uh, a paper or a physical note uh, that holds the worth in the gold that is sitting in the, the central bank. So it's kind of a paper receipt so or an IOU. Um, so that definitely started um, 
kind of in 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 Europe as as the industrialization of the world and colonization actually before the industrialization. So with with the Dutch East India Trading Company being really kind of the the first major player on the world scene, taking over you know many trade routes in in the East Indies, uh, exploring you know other countries, exploring the Americas, of course. So it's really inefficient to trade in gold on a you know, global scale, especially in, in high quantities. You know, gold's pretty heavy; it's hard to transport around, yeah. and there's this constant you know. Where is the central holdings of the gold? So the introduction of, of these paper receipts or, or fiat currencies was made, you know, made sense. But for, for a long time, these paper receipts or fiat currencies were just, you know, this is backed by gold 100%. You know, every, we're not printing or creating more uh, of these of this fiat currency, this paper receipt of what we have in gold. So it's totally pegged to the amount of gold that you have as a country. And uh, basically what happened is, you know, there would be a lot of loaning going on and, you know, countries found it pretty easy to, you know, extrapolate more paper receipts or more of their fiat currency than they did actually have gold. So they're basically lending out more than they actually had. And that would ultimately lead to, to the demise of, you know, the Dutch... Uh, as the the global economic power and see, you know, the next player rise to the top, which was, uh, you know, Great Britain for a while. So they had their own trading company. They have the British Empire, which, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire is so vast. And <laughs> people actually said that about the Dutch Empire as well. So um, but then the same thing yeah. kind of happened uh, to to Great Britain. So they were pegged to gold. You know, they had X amount of gold in, in their central banks and, and accumulated that through trade, through successful um, uh, battles and, and wars uh, across Europe and across the world. And, and that's how, you know, countries got more gold. And uh, really before, you know, the 1900s, uh, there was a lot of wars, but really there was less absolute wars because they or countries would easily just run out of money. They didn't have, you know, that, that ability to just print more money and, and uh, you know, actually like keep going in the war, fight useless wars. These were pretty, you know, substantial wars for, for territory in their empires. Um, but oftentimes, you, you, have know, a, they, you have a, yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, you, you have a, you have a finite resource. I mean, gold yes. and a finite capacity for extracting that resource. And so uh, there's, there's a limit. Yes, exactly. And, and the history of, of all these, you know, revolutions and, and dynamics within different empires uh, is, is really deep, and, and I highly recommend checking it out um, on, a, on a deeper level. But overall, that, that's kind of how things worked. And then, you know, we, we came around uh, the, to the early 1900s, and uh, there's some conflict rising in, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, with, uh, you know, the assassination of, of the Archduke of, of Austria-Hungary and, and World War One is, is beginning. And, and at this point, Great Britain is, is kind of the, the world economic power, the, the world reserve currency, the sterling or the pound. And they really joined a, a war that they didn't have to get involved in. And uh, it was a poor decision looking back for them uh, to get involved in this war. And uh, in order to pay for it, they, they basically created a, a, a lot of uh, debt that they were hoping their their country, their citizens would be willing to to pay for. 
but in reality they weren't because they didn't feel as as though they needed to join this war and and because of that decision and funding this war and getting involved in that they could no longer had they no longer had the resources the gold the money to actually be pegged the pound be pegged to the gold at you know at this fixed rate of what it was so they went off the gold standard they had to and that kind of set the scene for for the whole century and you know we saw the decline of of Great Britain and this this large conflict uh in in Europe continue to uh you know World War 1 happened and then some poor decisions were made post World War 1 that set the scene for for World War 2 and uh, at this time you know the United States is a rising global economic power and after World War 2 they they had you know the most amount of gold of any nation and had a gold standard and at the Bretton Woods conference uh was decided that the United States dollar would become the global reserve currency so this was you know great for the United States but now kind of people and central bankers understood that it was possible to really um you know mess with with your your currency and and basically print money um to fund things that that you really wanted to pursue at at whim and uh this was now known and and really set the scene uh going forward so for a while the US was was taking advantage of that um and this is where you know Keynesian economics kind of plays the role that the government should intervene they should create you know um increase the money supply during an economic downturn to increase uh you know this consumer spending and basically just an interventionist form of uh, economic thought so this kind of was now the you know accepted economic protocol and that was practiced by the United States up until the 70s when in 1971 basically everyone's calling the US bluff of you know lending out their money and actually not having you know they printed more money than they had in their gold reserves so if everyone goes to redeem that paper receipt all at once then you're going to be insolvent and that's exactly what happened to the United States in in 1970 1971 and Nixon had to take us off the gold standard so that was you know the huge mark in uh huge. you know huge change in uh how we operate monetary policy and uh since then you know i mean that whole decade was a mess with stagflation you know high high inflation up to you know 20% roughly and uh interest rates had to be you know risen to around that same rate 20% to combat that inflation and that kind of just set the scene on on how we handle monetary policy now but once yeah. you do that you're really just setting a time a timeline or a stopwatch for for how long you can last as a currency because once that connection is as is the ripped, global reserve currency yes and and Certainly. once that connection is 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 you no know, broken you know once great britain decided to make that decision uh in in the early 1900s and enter world war 1 their you know their time as a global reserve currency was also you know finite so i think that's the same that goes for the us dollar we kind of made it through the 80s and 90s and then we had this you know huge run up dot com bubble and had to you know enact more interventional policies then and then of course we have the 2008 economic crisis and uh yeah that brought us to having artificially low interest rates because now 
we've just accumulated so much debt. So if you, if you look at the, you know, the, the debt of the United States is, is crazy. Um, and, and the debt to G- GDP ratio, um, over, you know, triple digits. So now 2022, we're here. We've had artificially low interest rates for the past, you know, decade because of what happened in the past. And then we have COVID shut down everything, locked down everything. So once interest rates are a knob to turn that, that you can't turn anymore because they're already at zero or less than 1% and they're negative real interest rates, which means countries that are holding the U.S. dollar in uh, are, are getting a negative real interest rate. And, and that's how this all works. Basically, as a global reserve currency, countries are just buying the U.S. dollar as a form of debt. But in reality, they're, they're getting a negative real interest rate to hold it. So it's, it's not a system that's functioning properly. It's not sustainable. Not exactly. sustainable. Exactly. And uh, now we had the lockdowns and, you know, the only thing we could do to stimulate, you know, economic growth or, or just economic recovery in, in a lockdown, which is questionable whether we should have, of course, but that doesn't even matter because it's, uh, yes. you know, it's over now. And yeah, we expanded the, yep. the money supply 40, 50% more since, money. since 2020, because that was the only thing they could do because interest rates were all already extremely low or at zero. And um, now we're here in 2022 with the expected, you know, pretty much double digit rates of inflation. And uh, the only thing they can do is raise interest rates. But why I'm saying this is so exciting to see play out is that you know, in the in the seventies, late eighty or late seventies, nineteen eighty, we had to raise interest rates to you know almost twenty percent to combat the inflation. Right now, we have so much debt that if we raise them to a certain point, we're we're basically bankrupting you know the many corporations and and the the U.S. dollar. And this holds true for Japan. The yen, uh, the euro is also in a similar situation where we actually can't raise the rates that high because we have such a fine balance between the amount of, of debt we have and, and it can easily cause a default on, on the currency again and make us go bankrupt. So yeah, I'm excited to see how this plays out, but that's kind of you know yeah. how the currency works today. The global trade is denominated in, in US dollar. It's, it's kind of agreed upon since the Bretton Woods Conference. Uh, but right now is probably the most fragile it's been, and it's probably only going to accelerate. In, in across the, the globe. I mean, I think not just instability in the dollar, but instability across multiple different global currencies in a situation where you have a high level of connectedness throughout the globe in how we trade goods and the way that goods make their way around the world and to feed and clothe and furniture yeah. and more, an entire global populace. And and so, I, and that was beautiful, by the way. I, I learned so much just then and I needed, I needed to like set the scene. No, I'm, I'm, like, I'm how glad. How does this work? I'm not an economist. <laughs> I'm an engineer. So hopefully that was understandable. But, but for me, you know, what is the biggest takeaway as we went through this history is that the, the, the supply of the money is infinite. Right. And then once you get along this train of having it actually backed by nothing and you start to increase the supply regularly and you start to play around uh, with the interest rates. But now your debt is so high that that you can't actually raise the rates so much. 
that's you're, you're cornered into a situation that you almost are going to go down the, plat, the path of, of potential hyperinflation or at least regularly high levels of inflation. So scarcity, extreme addition to this money supply is a regular expectation now and, and scarcity is, is non-existent. So that's the most important quality and thing to remember, I, I think. Yeah, and I think on this current economic model, and we can kind of point, you know, after the industrial and the scientific revolution 350 years ago, we kind of go into the modern economic model, maybe not the currency model, but this, you know, Adam Smith writes Wealth of Nations, you have Keynes and and these players that are kind of making these these sciences of economics. And one thing that I was actually talking about in a podcast that I recorded yesterday is this sort of Cartesian reductionist thinking of getting into, you know, breaking everything down into its component parts. When I think in many ways, the financial system is an ecosystem. And I pulled this quote from this book I've been reading because I thought it was, it was an interesting way of looking at this. And I mean, the idea during that time was that you could just have slow, steady economic growth in perpetuity, that we would just slowly and steadily continue to rise. But the the mathematics of the time, you know, these Newtonian dynamics weren't actually accounting for friction. And, yep. and all of the economic model was modeled after this Newtonian, ideal. you know, it's Cartesian. Ideals. It's yeah. ideal. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ideal. It's a utopia. And they're missing this idea of friction within the markets. And I just think it's, it's really interesting. I agree with you that it's really interesting to be in this time here now and to see what's happening and to wonder what comes next, which I think leads us right into cryptocurrency and into Bitcoin and what role it might play in the future of our currency system. And so do you want to just dive into kind of breaking down Bitcoin for people? Yeah, yeah. And, and before that, just what you said there is extremely important, right? These are all like ideal scenarios where, you know, wars, really military conflict, um, you know, agriculture, disasters from maybe natural disasters. These, these things are never taken into account, maybe in ideal models. And that's why they don't work because... Ideally, as you know, a currency, you might want to increase the money supply by just a couple percent each year to just encourage constant growth over a long period of time. And that's basically what gold is, right? The supply of gold increases by just a couple percentage points each year. And it's been pretty stable over the you know, last uh, few hundred years. And, and that's why it is, you know, the hardest physical form of money. But that doesn't work with fiat currencies when there's a lot of conflict and, uh, you know, things that can go wrong, friction, like you said. So I think that's a great point to add. But yeah, Bitcoin, why, what is Bitcoin and, and why is it different? And yeah. Uh, yeah, cryptocurrency, that's a whole other sphere. But, but in, in general, I, I do, you know, I focus only on Bitcoin in this book because although Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency, now there are thousands of them, but none of them are like Bitcoin and none of them ever will be because of the fundamentals of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network. And that's an important point to, to start with. But but overall, you know, what what is Bitcoin? Um, how does it work? What is the advantage of, you know, a, a digital currency and one that's fully decentralized? 
which is an extremely important characteristic is, you know, Bitcoin is, is a, a peer to peer electronic cash payment system as, as outlined in, in the white paper, um, which you can easily download online. You just Google Bitcoin white paper and it has, you know, some, we'll post some a good link summary. To that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, everyone should read it, but there's a lot of technical information as, as well in there that you might not understand, but that's kind of like the, the first lines and, and, uh, Basically, to understand what, what Bitcoin is from, you know, an, an everyday use perspective or, or just in general, how it can benefit you is uh, what is it similar to? So you might hear, you know, peer to peer electronic cash, but like, oh, we already have that. You know, we already have Venmo, PayPal, Zelle now, and, and these are becoming extremely popular and they're convenient. Right. But they're, they aren't actually peer to peer. So so what peer to peer or how those function is that. You know, if I want to Venmo you, Kate, it might seem like it's just going between me and you, but there's a lot of financial institutions that are involved in, in this transaction. So in order for me to Venmo you, I have to have an account at a financial institution and be in good standing with that account, you know, have regular money. And then I set up my Venmo account. Um, I need to have sufficient funds and then I can send you money and then you have to have um, I, I guess you could technically have it just on the app, but then you wouldn't be able to, to use it really. So typically you would have your financial account linked to your Venmo account and then you would transfer it back into that account. And that whole process, you know, of clearing and sending, although it's instantaneous in terms of the app, it actually takes a few days to fully clear and fully process. But in reality, that money I'm sending you I don't own that money. I don't actually physically know where that money is. It's, it's just, you know, accounting on my financial institutions end. And in reality, they're the ones who own it. They hold my money. I am trusting them to, you know, do good by, by my financial account. So it's not peer to peer. It's a third party system. And that third party is the bank. And that third party has all the leverage, you know, and that's why they can get away with a lot of the negative things that people associate with banks, you know, poor customer service, mm -hmm. um, you know, freezing your bank account, charging an exorbitant amount of fees for, you know, using the ATM, overdraft, withdrawal fees, you know, trading fees, uh, financial advising fees, investment fees. That's their whole business model is, is fees, you know, and they make money. They make most of their money off of, of fees. So it's, uh, if you, if you go to the, the Bank of America, I guess just like annual report, it's, it's crazy. I think I have it written down here is, is they make, a Bank of America in 2020 made $7 billion in investment banking fees and, uh, overall 34 to 35 billion in, in fees or commission to, uh, that, and that's what that's 40% of, of their annual revenues is coming from fees. But, you know, you could argue, you know, that's the service you're entrusting someone to to hold your money and it's safe. Um, it's backed by FDIC insurance. But in reality, if uh, if every single person went like if, if you had a, a good amount of money and if you just wanted to go to the bank and pull out like $100,000, they would never let you do nope. that. You can't it would do that. Be, it would be so hard because in reality, they're, they're totally insolvent. You know, it's the fractional reserve banking system. They loan out 
most of the money. So that's how that works. And it's similar to, you know, how our currency works is you give them your money, they pay you an absolutely garbage interest rate, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that and uh, it's literally not, it's nothing today. And then they loan it out to someone else for, you know, a mortgage loan or a car loan or, or whatever for actual, you know, five to 20%. So they're making money on that. But in reality, they don't have all the money that they're, you know, are in the bank accounts of, of their holders. So it is really, it's, it's just a giant shuffling of, of money around. So a lot of people have seen how that can, you know, play out. And in 08, 09, we saw the insolvency cool. crisis of some of these large banks. Yes. And yeah, it's, you know, it doesn't matter saw, if... We saw the willingness of the government to take big leaps to intervene. Yes. Yeah. yeah and they really have to. Um, but yeah, your money really is not that safe uh, in the in the actual grand scheme of things. But regardless, what what is Bitcoin? Why is it different? Because it's actually a peer-to-peer network of 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 money of of digital money and if i have bitcoin i and it's i hold the private keys i own it it's not on the exchange that you bought it from or or wherever you got it from i can send it to you directly it's my bitcoin i own it i'm sending it to you in 10 minutes it'll be confirmed at least partially on the blockchain then you will receive that in, in your digital wallet and uh, you will own it. There's no middleman of a third party because the middleman is actually the network, uh, the Bitcoin network. So to backtrack, that's kind of the, the main functionality of you know how people transact with Bitcoin and why it's different is, is because you actually own it. You hold it if you hold the private keys and not using a custodian or an exchange where you bought it, which is actually a, a very important thing to understand. And now we've seen actually in the, the past couple of weeks why that's even more important because yes. we're having you know a solvency crisis within the, the crypto community and people are learning that the hard way. Yes. Um, but either way, that's, that's how it functions. That's the advantage is that you physically own uh, the Bitcoin. You are responsible for it. Therefore, so it does come with increased responsibility, but you have the ownership of it um, and, and nobody can, can take that away from you. And you have direct control of, of how that's operating. There's no company. There's no CEO of Bitcoin. So it's important to understand how it works, because if you mess up a transaction, that's on you. But and it's gone. it gives you. Yes. Potentially it's 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 gone forever. So, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's how um you know how it works when when you want increased uh liberty uh with your financial with your money so yeah bitcoin is it's not a company it was created anonymously um, perfect that was by, my next question yeah by someone under the the pseudo name satoshi nakamoto in 2008 2009 and um yeah we don't know who it is if it's one person male or female, if it's a group of people, we have no idea. But that is actually the craziest part about Bitcoin. And it's actually, you know, people argue whether that's that's really important to the decentralization aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it, it certainly is. But yeah, to this day, there's not, you know, in a, in a modern society where everything is leaked, everything is known, it's extremely impressive how 
literally nobody knows. I mean, maybe like 10 people on the earth know. I have no idea. So it's really yeah, and cool. I think, I think there's arguments both ways that, 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 that increases its trustworthiness and that, that obfuscation actually uh, creates some doubt in its trustworthiness. Yeah. Yeah. And, but why is that important? Because actually the, the Genesis wallet or the wallet that only Satoshi would have access to, which we don't even know if he does or she does, or they do this group of people or this individual, they could be dead. They could be, they could have thrown the keys, you know, that information to this wallet in the ocean. Who knows? We don't know, but What's incredible is is that, you know, there's like billions of dollars in this wallet and it hasn't moved. Nope. And we know that because the Bitcoin network, you can actually map the transactional data. So so how does how does the Bitcoin network work? And uh it's it's always explained as uh, a distributed ledger, which to be honest when I first started, I have no idea what that means. So the way I like to think about it, or at least I explained in the book, is it's kind of like a shared Google spreadsheet, right? And, and ledgers are also often compared to spreadsheets. And, and this Google sheet, for example, um, you know, everybody in the world has access to it. So it's way more transparent than you think. And this is also what I write about in terms of criminal use. It's funny when, you know, people, politicians are slamming it for criminal use because it's actually, and the FBI has, has confirmed that it's actually easier to track criminals when they use Bitcoin because they can track down the transactional history compared to cash, uh, for example. But either way, this is a, you know, a shared Google sheet or spreadsheet and, and each sheet is, is kind of, uh, can be called like a block. And, and these blocks uh, are released uh, every 10, 10 minutes uh, into circulation. And each, each block um, has, you know, X amount of Bitcoin as a reward uh, for um, these miners that are mining Bitcoin. But, but why, are, why are they doing this and how does that uh, play into the transactional piece? So uh, when, when you send a transaction on the Bitcoin network, it gets transcribed in a block. So each block has, you know, hundreds of transactional information. And in order to verify that, so think of the third party um, earlier, right? Your bank is the third party. The Bitcoin network is, is the third party in this situation. And in each block, there's all these transactions and they need to be verified um, in order to go through that, you know, Tristan has X amount of Bitcoin in his digital wallet, which has a specific address. And then he's sending that to Kate digital wallet, which there's no names attached to this. It's just, you know, alphanumeric characters. And um, that needs to be verified by someone, right? It can't just be a trustless situation. So that's where the network comes in and it's verified by the network. But in order to incentivize people or anyone to verify it and how it's verified is with uh, computational power or computational electrical hardware. So the what people know is, is Bitcoin mining, right? That's how Bitcoin is released into circulation. So in order to incentivize the verification of, of these transactions, Satoshi set up the network so that each block has a, a reward of Bitcoin for verifying these transactions. And uh, in order to verify and get this potential reward of Bitcoin, 
you need to solve complex algorithms, mathematical algorithms to get this reward or, or fight for a piece of the reward. And therefore, you're also simultaneously verifying this transactional data. So in the beginning, you could do this with a very small piece of hardware, you know, your computer, your Xbox, whatever, because the overall usage of the network was very low. The price of Bitcoin was, was very low, of course, as well. The adoption overall was, was very low. So fast forward to today, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar industry of Bitcoin mining and the mining difficulty has therefore increased a very large amount and these miners are using you know extremely expensive pieces of, of hardware uh, to solve these complex algorithms faster uh, than someone who has you know an inferior piece of hardware so that's why you technically could mine something with your your computer but you're never going to get like anything uh, in terms of uh, reward from from the block because you just don't have the computational power um, the hardware to to solve those algorithms fast enough so that's why this has become such an exponential rise but either way these miners are verifying the transactional data they're you know they're competing to do this so it's a competition and then in turn they're verifying the data your transaction goes through on the network every 10 minutes there's a block so back to the spreadsheet analogy this block is like one cell in the spreadsheet and each cell is or each block is every 10 minutes being verified by the mining network and um, therefore there's x amount of bitcoin that's released into circulation new bitcoin that has never been released and that goes to the miners for verifying your transactions then the next block it moves to the next block the difference between a spreadsheet and the Bitcoin network is that it's sequential and that's where the name blockchain comes because one block after another, sure. it just forms a chain of sequential blocks. And why it's so important to know that is you cannot just go and change, you know, block number 10 if you're on block number 25 now, because in order to do that, because it's sequential, you need to go and undo blocks 25 through 10 in order to change block 10. And in order to do that, now the computational uh, hardware that would be required to do that, the mining power would be so immense that it's pretty much impossible to do that. Because not only, and, and that's why the Bitcoin network is so secure, um, because it's extremely difficult to undo a block and the, this is called a, a proof of work system. So the work is the, you know, the algorithms, the, the work done by the hardware to solve these and verify the transactions. And in order to do this work, you get rewarded in Bitcoin. But in order to undo it, it's extremely difficult. So that's kind of how it functions. You know, it's a dynamic, sequential you know, spreadsheet that holds this transactional information that incentivizes competition amongst miners to therefore get rewarded in Bitcoin. And that's how it secures the network, both from, you know, a hackability standpoint and also a verification standpoint of the transactions. 
So I know that's a lot um, of information, but that's kind of how it works. And then maybe next we could go into why would they want to be rewarded in Bitcoin? What, what is so different about the fundamentals? But Let's do it. No, please go any on. Any questions Tell us. there? <laughs> um, no, I think that's such a beautiful overview. And I think that one of the most difficult things about having this conversation around Bitcoin is that there are so many of us that don't even really understand the system, the methodology that's underlying this new idea of currency, which makes it feel even more difficult to wrap your head around and yeah so yeah. that's that's a great point and i want to make that clear is that's literally why I, I wrote this book is because both bitcoin uh the monetary system food system health nutrition farming i mean these are all extremely technical topics and the reason why the everyday individual does not understand these topics is because they're extremely technical but yeah. the mainstream media often has, you know, journalists reporting, you know, sensationalist headlines, de, you know, debasing the credibility um, of, you know, Bitcoin and beef when they don't really understand how these, how these, um, you know, systems function at even a high level. So I wanted to write this book, you know, chapter one is it's literally called What is Bitcoin? And a lot of the things I'm saying right now is, is covered uh, in chapter one. And uh, same thing, chapter two is outlining, you know, our food system, chronic disease. Why, why does this stuff matter? How did we get here? Because this stuff is, is very hard to, to wrap your head around um, if, if you don't have your, you know, toes at least in the water. And uh, even then, it's, you know, there's, you could go so deep to where it's really people spending their entire lives researching this. And uh, I'm not, you know, uh, that person. I'm not the most expertise uh, view on either Bitcoin or you know, the food system and health. I, I have an engineering background. I've wrote research papers to get my master's degree. So I have an understanding of, of technical information, reading research and uh, extrapolating from there and being an engineer, electrical, I understand, you know, the, the grid, the power dynamics and just more, um, you know, technical information at a, at a high level. But I'm not an expert either, so I wanted to write this so people can understand what's important to take away. And uh, you can see even just explaining to someone how Bitcoin works is, is pretty challenging. Um, and most people know what it is. They've heard of it, but they don't really know what it is. They don't really understand the fundamentals. And that's what's the key here is it's the fundamentals. Why is yeah. it different? I think, I mean... You know, through the lens of this podcast, we're always kind of exploring what it means to lay the groundwork, what it means to build that foundational fundamental knowledge of any given thing where you can then go from there. And and I mean, it's also meant in this concept of laying the groundwork for generations to come that what we do now within our financial system, within our agricultural system is going to have far reaching effects into future generations. And there's kind of this idea of how do we care for a child 100 years before it's born or even more. And, and I think that there really are a lot of intersecting considerations here between Bitcoin and a regenerative farming model. And, and maybe now is actually a good time to kind of maybe begin to put them together and then we can dive into some, some deeper questions around Bitcoin towards the end. 
Yeah, yeah. Just just sound? at a high level, it sounds great. But the reason why Bitcoin is, is different, and we kind of set the scene there, was the uh, it's scarce. It's it's the most scarce form of money. So this whole situation for miners being rewarded by verifying the transactional data for you to send Bitcoin across the network is how it functions. Why do they want to be rewarded in Bitcoin? Why do people want to send it? Is because there's and there's 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be created. Um, that is a finite number. That code cannot be changed. And that is scarcity to the definition. And uh, yes. right now we have about 19 million Bitcoin in circulation. So this started being mined, you know, over just over a decade ago. And, um, you know, a lot, the majority was put into circulation. Uh, as you can see, 19 million out of 21 million were, you know, 90% almost of the way there and um, or over. And the thing is every four years or so, the amount that gets put in circulation on a daily basis, on a 10 minute basis uh, will be cut in half. So that reward for the miners uh, will continue to decrease around every four years, uh, therefore making it even more scarce. And that annual inflation rate of Bitcoin will continue to drop. So right now it's it's a little bit above the overall growth rate or inflation rate of gold. It's like a couple percent, but every four years it'll continue to be cut in half. So actually, although we're at 19 million Bitcoin right now, the 21 millionth Bitcoin won't be mined for, I think, another hundred years or so. And uh, yeah, that's digital scarcity. There's you know seven billion people on the planet. There's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. You can do the math. That's not even enough to sustain the amount of, of millionaires there are um, currently in the world. So if you hold just, just one Bitcoin, so you can see how the potential for growth and in a world where inflation is rampant currently, this is what it was made for. This was made coming out of the 08 recession, realizing this faulty monetary policy, providing an alternative that is native to the internet, native to the digital age that, that we now live in. So that is where the, the true value is, is in the scarcity of the asset. Yeah. And that it has this finite cap that there is no amount of quant, you can't quantitatively ease Bitcoin and print more or mine more of it. Um, and one, one thing I really wanted to make sure that we captured is this decentralized nature of how mining works. And if you could yeah. just touch on that so that we have that picture going into this conversation between farming and Bitcoin. Yeah. So overall, that's why it's um, decentralized. So there, there's no central computer of this. It's a network of computers or computational hardware that is mining the, the Bitcoin added into circulation. There's also no company. There's no CEO. Like I said, there's no customer service. So it's, it's fully decentralized. And, and from a mining perspective, there has been a lot of criticism around, you know, for a while there, there was a large, you know, cluster of, of miners in, in China that had, you know, a large amount of, of the, the mining power or what's called the, the hash rate, um, of the network. And, uh, well, since then, China has, you know, outlawed mining and there is some, some truth that, but still they don't, even come close to having enough mining power to fully, you know, have any control over the network or hack the network, for example. And uh, since then, it's it's only become more decentralized because there's more and more adoption. There's more people who want to get into mining. Um, so overall, 
it's it's decentralized because there is not a central mining hub. Anybody can mine Bitcoin and anybody can verify. You could actually just verify transactions with an even smaller piece of hardware. You won't get rewarded in Bitcoin really, but you'll be just verifying transactions. And there's over, you know, 10,000 what's called nodes. Um, and, and these Bitcoin nodes are, are all verifying transactions. And, and the miners are totally, you know, spread out throughout the world, although there is large clusters of, you know, large mining groups. Overall, it's it's extremely decentralized because there's no one central entity. Um, there's no central bank of Bitcoin. There's no central mining company of, of Bitcoin. It's a, a collective effort. And the more adoption there is over the coming years, remember this is, you know, just over a decade old. It's extremely new technology still. The more dispersed um, that will be. And uh, it's still very nascent technology, but that fundamental decentralization that's program- programmed into the network is, is what really separates it. And there's nothing you can change about that. That's the beauty of it. If you want to be part of the decentralization, decentralization and, and the network, you, you can hop on board. That's what's so cool about it. It's, it's open source and it's really empowering the individual. I love that. And I think that this concept of decentralization is really critical to how we consider how we do prepare for these generations going forward and what we do want our lives to look like. I actually pulled this quote from um, a book on ecology about what a network is because it sounded a lot to me like Bitcoin. And I'm going to read it. I like quotes. Um, (laughs) In other words, the web of life consists of networks within networks. At each scale, under closer scrutiny, the nodes of the network reveal themselves as smaller networks. We tend to arrange these systems, all nesting within larger systems, in a hierarchical scheme by placing the larger systems above the smaller ones in a pyramid fashion. But this is a human projection. In nature, there is no above or below, and there are no hierarchies. There are only networks nesting within other networks. That's... Yeah, that's so true. And that's that's very true, right? Because, yeah, we like to layer things in, in hierarchies and there's always someone in charge at the top, I guess is what's really important, right? Yeah. Um, but Bitcoin, there is there's no one in charge. It's human nature. I, and I think it is especially human nature within the paradigm of this mechanistic and sort of reductionist view that we see that break at Rene Descartes. And we also see this break. I was actually just reading this book where we see a break in, in cyclicality, which we see mirrored in nature, whether that's the seasons or the lunar cycles or life and death into an idea of linear thinking. And really when, when we get into this idea of how we move about in nature, there's nothing linear about nature. And so I I think there's some interesting correlations there, um, between, between networks and between sort of non-linear styles of thinking about currency. And absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, overall it's, it's thinking outside the box, right? I mean, you know, the problem with scientific research, and and this is where I think we start getting into the overlapping, you know, in in every industry is, is, uh, yeah, the, the problem with research and, and how we do things nowadays, or, you know, the environment of thinking has become so narrowed down to this sphere of, of academia and, and really, 
the only people who are doing research in academia are just furthering, you know, what's the current knowledge. But in, in order to make any progress, you have to totally step outside this box. And uh, I think um, the fact that there's no no one to tie Bitcoin to, like an economist or a government entity, is what makes it so powerful because you can't just – there's no bias. There's no groupthink. There's none of this garbage – um, you know, biases because they're left or right, or they're from this institution or they're holistic or they're traditional. It's just, this is it. And you can't weigh it down with that kind of, uh, negativity. It it's just, it's, it's free. It's yeah, decentralized in terms of a thought process too. I mean, exactly. it's not just that, that it's not coming from one binary or another, that, that it is really just the process of the people that are interacting with that system, with the system of Bitcoin, that it's this sort of, I mean, maybe in, to a degree, there's some reciprocity within that relationship. And I think, I think we should dive into some of these overlaps between Bitcoin and farming. And I wonder if you might let me kind of dive into where I think the scene kind of starts. And if you think I'm Absolutely. wrong, you can just, you can tell me. But as I was reading it. this and as I was thinking about some other things, it really struck me that we see this intersection between health, currency, and farming really occur in the 1970s where, where all of these different things kind of happen. And this is sort of the genesis for how our culture in terms of health and finance has really changed. And in those three moments, you have Nixon pulling us off the gold standard, which you, you beautifully led us up to from a historical point. So Nixon pulls us off the gold standard. We have Earl Butts, who's the Secretary of Agriculture under Nixon, decides that we're going to get big or get out. And, and that was his exact quote, that we are going to go big in agriculture, that we are going to centralize everything, or it's time for you to get out. And that was really the death knell for the small family farm here in America and the beginning of the centralization of our food system. And so I think that's an interesting point. And then at that, the, around the same time, and it's funny to kind of put all of these things together, we have the, the famous researcher Ansel Keys begin to in conjunction with the media, vilify fat with his seven countries study. And I know we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, the big fat surprise by Nina Teicholz and the case against sugar by Gary Taubes really, really dive deep into Ansel Key's total effect on how we view fat. But this moment we go off of eating animal fats and we start producing seed oils and there begins to be more centralization in processed foods. And what I was thinking about with this is that at this point, and you can look at the, the different graphs for sort of human health, for human fertility, all of these things really begin their decline in the 70s. And this is correlation, not causation. So it's always important to bear that in mind. But I think we see this decline in both physical and environmental health, as well as in monetary, monetary wealth of anything other than the upper class. And one of the other arguments that I thought about making is that there's also this decline in physical and environmental wealth. And I think you can make this argument that our fecundity, that our fertility, when you're looking at both soil and human fertility, are an indicator of wealth. Like that is our ability as an organism to propagate and grow. 
That's our ability to propagate as a species. It's our ability to, to grow, maybe not perpetually, but within a natural limit. And I think it's really interesting that we see all of these things kind of intersect in the 1970s, and we see the rise of the centralization of our food system and of farming, both, um, and, and their connection and ultimately their synthesis to become one, that our, our, our food system of processed food and farming are very tied together. You know, you see the gold standard end and you see the vilification of fat. And I, I just, it's interesting. No, I mean, you summed it up beautifully. I, I think uh, everything, you know, there's so much overlap because these are all so important. But I, yeah. I think the 70s, I, I would say I think the 70s is where it really, I mean, we totally disconnected and the accelerator went full throttle. But reality, the groundwork kind of was leading up to that for, for definitely probably most of the, the 20th oh, yeah. century. But overall, I mean... I, I totally agree and, and why you know I why I wrote this book is is because there is so much overlap in in the mindset for the things that went wrong and the mindset of the people who want to take back that into their lives and take back control really that's it's what it comes down to you know at the you know beginning of the 20th century the average person could save their money they wouldn't have to worry about it being robbed by inflation or having to play part-time investor in order for it to just grow at the rate of the increase of the money supply and, and just to save up to, you know, buy a house, raise a family, start a business, or even they could just save the money in the U.S. dollar or, or whatever currency um, was a lot stronger back then. And then in, in contrast on the, you know, the, or simultaneously on the health side or the food side, they could walk into a grocery store or they would probably be shopping more locally at their farmer's market or, or just talk to their farmer. They, they, it would be you know less of a conscience, conscientious thing that they could just buy the food and it would be you know good for them. It would be you know unprocessed, minimally processed and uh, they wouldn't have to really worry about being, you know, a part-time nutritionist or a part-time, you know, reading all these yeah. research papers, listening to all these podcasts about, um, it was, it was brainless, thoughtless. They would just have money that would be savable. They would have food that would provide them proper nutrition. They would live a healthy life. They would be able to save up, raise a family. And, uh, yeah, that's how society should have been. But then as we accelerated to these trends in the seventies, it derailed. Yeah. And I, I want to remark, like, I think it's really easy to romanticize the past. And so I don't want to get caught in that trap of over romanticizing that Fair. it was, that it was this bucolic, you know, it was tough uh, still living. It was hard. They had to work hard, but then, you know, they were working in a, you know, a factory and that may have had their own health consequences or they were a small farmer or, um, whatever, say they were an accountant, you know, that's a similar job that people have today. They were an accountant. They didn't have to worry about being, you know, uh, also an investor or, or a nutritionist because that's, I feel like I have the knowledge of like six job titles or more yeah, nowadays because, you know, I'm researching economics, history, finance, finances, you know, I'm an engineer by, by trade, nutrition information galore, you know. Yeah health information galore, farming. I mean, oh my gosh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I love all, all these it's topics, but it's, it's really, it shouldn't be like that. 
No, it shouldn't. And I think what I would argue is the difference is that there was a much greater level of transparency during that time. Maybe not ease, but things were, there wasn't this level of obfuscation and, and complete manipulation, I think, of, that we see now. And so you could have a little bit more trust in, in maybe some institutional systems and in your food system. But I agree with you. I mean, the, we're in this position where to really get to the root cause of anything in today, whether that's illness or, you know, the, what's befalling the financial system, you have to do a, an enormous amount of research on your own owing to the fact that we have access to that level of research too. And so I think that's an important piece as well with the advent of the internet. We in the seventies, more... we, we didn't. So eighties, no. nineties, really we didn't. So yeah. 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 And so a lot has changed, but I think that in many ways there is a movement within agriculture to get back to the decentralization that that really existed before this and i think the regenerative agriculture movement represents that very much so that it is antithetical to the centralization of big food and big pharma and where those two things have have combined and so do you want to kind of talk about this intersection of decentralization between bitcoin and beef yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, on, on the, you know, the farming, the, the food side of things, you know, in the 70s was, was the turning point. And then, you know, how this all started was was because of a lot of subsidies, post-World War II, population, yes. supporting the population boom, we're never going to be able to feed anyone. So America put on its, you know, big old industrial hat and said, we need to do whatever we can to, you know, just get enough calories to to feed the world. And, you know, during wartime, it's it's a big deal, and you know, obviously, if, if your country doesn't have enough food to, to feed soldiers your or its population, yeah, you're not going to make it. So, sure, that's important short term, but then a lot of these policies they all kind of just hung around, and then yes, um, corporations started to realize this. So they they realized there was all these subsidies, you know, and, and farmers in uh, you know corn, soy, wheat. So they started, you know, continue to grow more of it, um, and then using it in, in their products, right? It's, it's really not always the fault of the corporation, but, you know, soft drinks moving from sugar to high fructose corn syrup, everybody, I mean, everyone used to fry their French fries in like beef tallow. I mean, yes. I didn't even know this till like the other week, but McDonald's did until like yeah. the early nineties. Yeah, was, like, it was a long shocked. time, not canola yeah. oil, not some, some exactly. adulterated seed oil. Yeah. But eventually, you know, a, a business is like any other business. And, and when you work in the world of, of margins and, and, you know, growing your revenue, it's it's almost a no-brainer decision when something is like a half or or a fifth of the price, which we know is, is how it's trended with with some of these low-cost ingredients because of the subsidies uh, at first, and then they're continuing to stick around, and then um, just the increase of production and these corporations because of that decided to exploit that, and they're the ones that are now the the multi-billion-dollar corporations that have so much power and have just decided to, you know, continue to grow and, and really all this, this headway really 
uh, stripped away the, the possibility of, you know, small farm being successful and being able to provide a, a living wage. So you kind of had to adopt this industrial farming method in order to keep up, in order to compete because it's so competitive, you know, your neighbors get, bigger, are, get out, your neighbors are getting bought up left and right. And that's the only way to, to adopt it. But, but now we're, we're at this point where the education is there and uh, the consumer is shifting their mindset because of, you know, the age of the internet, because of people like you uh, are educating um, consumers as well. And there's so many in the health, nutrition, far- farming, food space, people are coming more aware and, uh, the regenerative farming movement is, is picking up speed that just, uh, you know, small scale buying local is, is, is picking up a lot of momentum. So what, what is the advantage of that? You know, that's your question is how does the decentralization play into that? So yeah. the centralized food system, although it results in, you know, lower costs, it re- results p- potentially, you know, lower costs. Will you actually unpack a little bit? I've heard you talk about subsidies and you have a really succinct way of discussing subsidies because I think that's really important in the aspect of exploring why it's so low cost in the centralized processed food model. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that's a great point is, yeah, they're, they're artificially low cost and, and, and again, it's, it's kind of just like a chain reaction. So, so these subsidies existed um, to just, you know, provide the calories to feed the population for a while, but then they've stuck around. But um, just the magnitude of the subsidies so I write about in, in the book is, you know, corn, soybeans, wheat, these three crops account for about half of the total subsidies issued in the past like 30 years. And uh, since 1995, it's been over $115 billion in corn, and uh, you can add in another $50 billion for wheat and soybean, roughly. So, yeah, we're over $200 billion uh, since the 90s uh, handing out corn subsidies. So what that does is it makes uh, – and, and then on top of that, you know, there's, there's crop insurance and things for, for farmers. So they have a guaranteed paycheck even if, you know, a hailstorm destroys everything. So it's very intertwined. It's, you know, part of this interventionalist economic governmental policy um, that has ruined uh, the food system because it not only has made it extremely cost effective. So if you go to the store, you look at how much soybean oil, canola oil, anything that's processed wheat or flour, uh, the cost is extremely low. And it's because of these subsidies, because so many people are, are growing it because it's a guaranteed paycheck. And now that's been happening for year on year on year, decade on decade. And now we have a shortage of of farmers that want to kind of try something new because they're old, they're aging. The average age of the farmer, the farmer in the U.S. is like in the 60s. um, Late 60s, late 60s. Yeah, Yeah. depending on the state, it could be late 60s. So it's really bad. They don't want to change their process because they're, you know, they're in their late 60s. They don't have the energy to overhaul to, you know, a more regenerative or more natural farming system. And uh, there's a lot of risk because they have a guaranteed paycheck from growing subsidized crops. And uh, also these crops are are grown monocrop, you know, high input, high output is is like this whole model that, you you know, you you talked about. We're going to go big. Um, in, in the Secretary of Ag, right? And, and that system yeah. is, is high input, high output. And it does work in the short term, right? It, it definitely works in, in high output, but it's really short-sighted. 
And that's where I see is, is the biggest intersection is we have made so many short-sighted decisions as a society from an agriculture standpoint, from a food system standpoint, from a monetary policy system standpoint that has ruined our progress as a nation and society and a globe long-term. So that's what I think there's so much intersection is, is being able to see past the short-term benefits, the short-term pleasure for health and yes. for going that for, you know, a, a longer time horizon. And, and that really is important. And, and the reason, of course, you know a lot about is how monocrop agriculture, high input ruins the soil health. But either way, decentralization is all about fixing that. It's all about taking some of that market share away from these large corporations that are doing it the wrong way. It's uh, buying your source of food locally because that's more redundant to the supply chain. You have all these food issues now. I mean, sometimes I go to the grocery store, they don't even have eggs. They have no eggs. Sure. When I'm, when I'm up in Wyoming, I have five people I can call for a dozen eggs for two fifty, And they're yes. farm fresh. They're fantastic. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a better way to, to give back to the community as well. And uh, it's, it's a form of national security in your local econ- economy. So if, if we're importing all these goods from different countries, we could get into, you know, how the environmental impact of, of all that and how that's a whole situation. But decentralization in, in and of itself is providing security at the individual level instead of putting money more into the pockets of the larger corporations, which really don't hold the interests of the individual. They only hold the interests of their revenues, their profits, and their shareholders. Yeah, they are only accountable to their bottom line. And I think that that is a really different lens than when we look at what it means to be accountable to a community, whether that's your immediate community that you're feeding and and building a local economy within, or if it's the community of bacteria and microbes and fungi in the soil, or if that's the community of humans that are building a more sustainable lives for, for themselves and their children here on this planet. And so, and it's interesting, you, you touched on something that was a big question for me, which is both Bitcoin and regenerative ways of eating meat require this big shift in consumer values from short-term to long-term thinking, whether that's in the generation of health or soil or wealth. And so how do we shift those consumer values? Yeah, it's it's, it's probably the hardest thing, right? I mean, and th- this becomes, you know, prevalent with, with everyday lifestyle habits, you know, uh, short-term pleasure might be going out and partying, you know, having a great night, but really what's the long-term detriment to your health if, if you're doing that often and disrupting your circadian rhythm, putting toxins in your body. And uh, yeah, in terms of, of Bitcoin, right, people always complain about the volatility of, of Bitcoin, even though it's, you know, a, a 13-year-old asset, which is completely disrupting, you know, monetary policy and it's really perhaps, you know, the greatest invention of, of the 21st century. If you have a five-year time horizon, the, the return on Bitcoin is absurd. And it has been, and it's, you know, been the best performing asset class since the, you know, 2010, 2015, and, and 2020 still, even with the latest, you know, drop in all markets. But really, 
you just have a time horizon of five to 10 years and you understand the value of scarcity, which now more people do more than ever because of inflation, it's a no-brainer decision. I mean, it's it's really that that simple. You don't have to have your entire portfolio in it, but it's not it's not the same as an investment. It's having sound money that won't inflate. And if anything, it's just going to continue to increase in value because of the scarcity and the more and more people that figure it out will, of course, drive up the price. So if you just change that time horizon to, you know, five to 10 years instead of a couple months from now, which is, I don't know if it's the digital age. I think people really get stressed out when they see, you know, everyone becoming rich and famous on social media. They're traveling these great places and, you know, everyone's just so fit even though half those people are on steroids, especially in the uh-huh. you know, the male fitness community, yes. um, that they just, you know, they want the health pill, they want the magic pill, they want the magic stock, yeah. the, the magic investment that's going to get them rich in, in two weeks and get them ripped in, you know, a month. But it doesn't work like that. I mean, we, we know that results come from consistency. And if that's, you know, in, in farming, if that's in working out and exercising if that's an investing Warren Buffett for example that's literally all he preaches <laughs> even though he hates bitcoin he's also yeah. 90 years old but we'll give him we'll give him the merit of of that and uh it's consistency it's changing your time horizon you know we we underestimate what we can accomplish in in 5 to 10 years but way overestimate what what we can accomplish in in 1 year and uh, that's really what's important. So it's, it's this whole shift in mindset. And I think we have too many people that, you know, they're kind of like halfway in, you know, they try and, you know, do the diet. That's why the diet culture is so toxic is they try and do the diet. They, you know, they live the healthy lifestyle, um, you know, they save money or something like that, for example, for a short period of time. And then they're doing it unsustainably and then they go off the rails and the cycle repeats and uh, yeah, it's it's a, an issue. So if you convince someone to change their lifestyle for the better, for good, but you do it in a less you know forceful manner and kind of feed them the education bits and lead by example, I think that's a much more effective way. Um, and you know, for for money, you kind of have to show them the way slowly, and and that's why you now I wrote this book is because you have to understand the fundamentals. You have to understand how we got here, what's wrong with the current systems, and what are the solutions, and then you can be able to make a more informed decision and hopefully change your lifestyle habits for the better, for the long term. I love that, and I think that that really speaks to what is necessary, is this giant shift in perspective, right? That it's not a diet, it's just a change in lifestyle, and the long-term reward is, is health, is is fertility is joy and and those are you can't put a value on that return over a diet pill and so i think that there's a lot of overlap in terms of the perspective shift that it takes to to go to buying local food to buying regenerative meat and to looking at financial health and wealth over the course of the long term. And I, it's that idea of a health span versus lifespan, right? Like I, I want a, a long time where I am healthy 
and, and not a life where my health begins to degrade at 55 and I have another 20 years of, of pills. low quality of life <laughs> and pills. Yeah. Yeah. I want that long health span, not, not just a lifespan. There's another little overlap I kind of wanted to explore with you. And I think that's the vilification of beef and Bitcoin within the media, um, oftentimes from a really similar lens, oftentimes through their impact on the environment, which is maybe a deeply misunderstood issue on both sides. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the the book, you know, is, is laid out in, you know, introducing these topics. What are they? Why does it matter? And then literally writes part two of the book is, you know, the criticisms of, of Bitcoin and beef, because for some reason, I mean, these two are just really popular to just bash in, in the mainstream yes, media. Politicians, you know, the billionaires love to just talk smack about all the people in power, really. I mean, it's it's like they're a threat. I guess that's a form of flattery. That's how I, I take it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, a lot of overlaps. I think definitely touch upon the big one is uh, the environmental piece. So, you know, Bitcoin is, is often touted as, you know, consuming as much energy as like a Scandinavian country. And what does that even mean? Um, and, and what it comes down to, again, uh, for both Bitcoin and the beef piece is this is highly technical information. If you don't understand how energy consumption works, how the Bitcoin mining network is set up, what that means in the grand scheme of things, um, or how farming works, how carbon sequestration yeah. works, how yeah. met, what does methane mean in terms of uh, gas characteristics compared to CO2? Uh, so we could talk a little bit about that, but overall, it's, it's very technical information. So if you're very, you know, high level or even just reading headlines of information, it's, it's very easy to, to paint a negative image for, for these topics. But what does it actually mean? So, you know, Bitcoin consumes uh, the network over, you know, 150 terawatt hours of, of energy a year, which is equivalent to small countries. But is that a lot? Actually, Global Bitcoin mining consumes less than 0.2% of the world's total energy production. What does that mean? I mean, that's a really small number yeah. if you think about it. Um, how much energy yeah. does the current financial banking system you know, consume or how much was consumed to put up every retail bank location yes. in the world? Um, ah, th this, is a that. Yeah. this is a potential future monetary system. And uh, yeah, it does consume a fair amount of, of energy. But uh, in reality, money is extremely important. So the fact that it's only 0.2% of the world's energy production, not a One lot. Of yeah, and what one of the things that I think gets lost in both the conversation of of beef and and Bitcoin, which I can't speak speak to really, but is this idea of energy accounting that we don't look thoroughly at what the alternatives mean. What does the institutional banking system look like in terms of the amount of energy that it takes to, you know, to build 
physical banking locations and to go and get the materials for those physical banking locations. You know, they say a piece of plywood goes around the world three times before it lands in its, in its ultimate location. Like what kind of energy expenditure is going into operating all those physical locations, all those ATMs all the way back. And, and, you know, this is a a thought experiment that you can also do within beef and farming. And I, I talk about this a lot in the, in the comparison of plant-based meat versus regenerative beef or even just conventional beef. What does it take to, in terms of fossil fuels, to fertilize that monocrop, to build those massive combines and to harvest all of those things? How much energy does it take out of a whole ecosystem? How much death is built into that system that we don't see? What about on the processing end of things, once it goes in and it's being processed on massive machinery and warehouses and packaged and all of these different things that you can go into this deep energy accounting that really changes your view of what that, you know, 0.2% really represents in relationship to banks. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, that's, that's a deeper view, right? I mean, but to be honest, I think people get, they're not going to understand that, right? So I, I like to start at high level and then bring them, bring them deeper. So same, same with beef too. So yeah, high level 0.2% of global energy. That's, it's really nothing. I mean, I think um, I've compared in the book and I've seen uh, a lot of data uh, that I'm going to read is, is from the, the Bitcoin mining council report from, from last quarter. And, you know, they say, you know, holiday Christmas lights, you know, if that were, you know, a country would, would also be on the same it's a little bit less. It's like 75% of, of Bitcoin's total energy consumption. All right. Should, you know, no one put up Christmas lights. Um, that, that's just an example. That's just absurd. Like no one's dragging, you know, holiday lights through, you know, the media is, you know, <laughs> we need to, this is ruining the planet. Elizabeth Warren is, is not tweeting that this is causing climate change, which is absolutely absurd. So that's a starting point, right? 0.2%. That's nothing in the grand scheme of things. And, um, it is a very important network and potentially, you know, our future monetary policy or, or reserve currency. I mean, who knows what can happen? And, uh, yeah, that, that amount of energy will, will continue to increase. But here's the other thing that, that people don't really understand is that the majority of Bitcoin is mined with sustainable or renewable energy. So, the estimates are, you know, they vary. Um, they've been as high as like 70 plus percent and as low as like 30 to 40 percent in terms of the energy sustainable mix. But right now, you know, the Bitcoin Mining Council's latest report saying it's somewhere roughly around 58 percent. And, you know, in the book, I estimated the, the real number is probably just above 50 percent. So that means over half of the Bitcoin is being mined with renewable or sustainable energy that a lot of it is additive to the grid. And this is a positive. So not only do I think that Bitcoin mining is not bad for the environment or bad for the grid, it's actually the best thing that's happened to energy consumption and energy production probably in the past, you know, 100 years. And that's because it's innovation because in order for a miner to be successful, it needs basically free or very low cost energy. 
you probably need to be less than five cents a kilowatt hour to be successful at Bitcoin mining and probably not even be competitive at, at those rates. You need to be close. It's to, a business. It's a business. And many of them you'll see and you know, the sell offs, the reason why it is volatile is because these miners are often need to sell their Bitcoin when the price drops so much because they just don't have, um, you know, the money to keep on to keep on mining because the energy cost is, you know, you have your hardware cost up front and then you have your daily energy cost. Um, so five cents or less a kilowatt hour, you're getting that absolutely nowhere in the world, um, commercially or residentially, pretty much. So that's where, you know, renewable energy comes in. You know, if, if you have, you know, wind farm or solar energy, once you have that upfront hardware um, cost put in, you have free energy theoretically, right? But what people don't talk about is that a lot of this Bitcoin mining is done dynamically and it's done with otherwise wasted energy. So Bitcoin miners are the most flexible consumers of energy, unlike common industrial loads like air conditioning units uh, or consumer uh, loads, air conditioning units, you know, just lighting, residential buildings, you know, that stuff has to, you know, has to happen, right? Um, people need air conditioning in their homes. They need to turn the lights on. They need to heat their homes, uh, ex- uh, et cetera. But Bitcoin miners, what they have the ability to is to turn off and on at a moment's notice. So what people don't understand is that the grid is like a trading desk. Um, it's like the stock market because prices of energy are fluctuating constantly. And oftentimes in demand surges and supply shortages, they go extremely high. So think of like a classic, you know, hot day in Texas, they'll actually tell you to not turn your AC below like 75 degrees because they straight up just don't have the energy to support it. And it's really, you know, a daily fluctuation and, and, you know, trying to manage that load. It's, it's really complicated stuff, but it's dynamic. And, uh, the opposite of that is on a super windy day in West Texas or, you know, Eastern Wyoming or California, super sunny day, prices will go very low or potentially even negative because um, generation sources have nowhere to offload this energy and they, you know, they, they need to get rid of it. So prices will go extremely low or negative. And that's where Bitcoin miners can scoop up extremely, you know, low priced or free energy and that's where they take advantage of it. And if it's a super high cost energy day, they might curtail their loads and, and turn them off and an not, not mine any Bitcoin. So they're really filling in the gaps of the energy demand and energy supply. And they're actually, you know, the perfect consumer of energy and often using, you know, these highly variable renewable sources because that's a problem with, you know, solar and wind is, you know, they're super dependent on, on the weather conditions and but on a day where there's excess, that energy becomes basically free. So that's the thing. And then otherwise, uh, or other than that, there's also, you know, stranded energy. Um, this one region in China, for example, during the wet season has, and it's a pretty rural area of China. They had like up to 40% of the mining power globally for three months was in this region because they get so much rain that the hydroelectric power generated is like multiple times what is needed in that local area. They don't have the infrastructure to send it to the major metropolitan areas of, you know, Beijing or, or Shanghai. Bitcoin miners 
All you need is, you know, a local data center and an internet connection, and you can mine that Bitcoin right there on the spot for little to no cost of energy, and you're not wasting the energy either, which is brilliant. And they're doing this, you know, natural gas flaring. There's countries doing it with geothermal. It's really incredible. So Fascinating. Not only is it really a small percentage of the energy production, it's mostly sustainable, highly innovative, and it's actually protecting our grid and improving the fundamental dynamics of how our grid works. And it's really exciting. I mean, I'm a nerd for like the power grid stuff and I'm excited to dive more into it, but it's really crazy how innovative and, you know, creative these, these Bitcoin miners are, are becoming. So I would say if you think that Bitcoin mining is, is bad for the environment or bad for the power grid, you are so misinformed on what's actually happening. And the innovation is extremely encouraging to see. Yeah. I mean, I'd make the same argument for beef, right? And as you were talking, I couldn't help think about, you use the term flexible consumers of energy. And I was thinking about both soil microbes and what flexible consumers of energy that they are as they sequester carbon deep in the, in the soil table. But also thinking about, I was, I'm actually looking out my window and I can see my goats who I actually consider to be incredibly flexible consumers of energy as browsers rather than grazers. And. I think that that's a that's really interesting to be able to better utilize the power grid in a way that makes sense in a decentralized manner. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's really I'm excited to see how this continues to evolve, but yeah, that just shows, you know, if you really understand grid dynamics and look into the data that mining companies are are putting out and understand that they literally can't be profitable unless they have cheap or free energy. Where are they getting that from? Renewable sources. So that's that's level one understanding that, uh, yeah, hopefully our, our politicians become more educated and, and don't regulate this or, or something. Because that would be a very, you know, sad to see. But Yeah, on both sides. I mean, just beef. this week in Canada, we saw... Uh, oh, New Zealand Ireland too. Is yeah, New oh. Zealand, Ireland are talking about taxing methane emissions from beef. Uh, they're talking about putting a health label on beef in Canada because of the saturated fat. Uh, we're really, we're really facing down a different level of considering this. And I, and I know you have. I actually really love your perspective on carbon and methane. And do you, you know? And since we've kind of talked about the the Bitcoin mining energy, do you want to talk about carbon and methane emissions in beef? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a perspective that I, you know, a lot of people in the health farming space they know a lot about beef emissions. Your audience, I'm sure you have talked about this at length. They understand soil health, yeah. you know, negative carbon beef, white oak pastures. This all exists. So. How I like to start it is a similar way, you know, really beef emissions are, you know, probably at worst four to five percent of, of global annual carbon emissions. But what most people don't understand, and of course, that's a whole natural process that's been going on for hundreds of years. And we've had all these wild ruminants, bison, elk, you know, pronghorns, deer, etc. for, you know, before we had cattle. So in reality, that's the only source of emissions that has been around but when you realize how they calculate these emissions, you are open to a whole new perspective. So 
All these emissions are calculated in carbon dioxide equivalent emissions because that's, you know, the biggest greenhouse gas and it's easy for them to base it in one common, you know, uh, form of emissions. So as you mentioned, and as most people know, ruminants such as cattle, sheep, goats, they emit methane, you know, through natural um, enteric emission fermentation process when, you know, they're, they're upcycling the nutrients from grass and turning it into very nutrient-dense food, which is a fantastic process. So methane, methane, in order to get methane into carbon dioxide emissions, they have a scaling factor, which is called the global warming potential metric, GWP. So all the regulating bodies, EPA, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is kind of the, big, the biggest one globally, they have a global warming potential for each gas outside of carbon dioxide, because carbon dioxide would just be one. And uh, methane, their global warming potential um, for methane is 28, uh, it ranges you know, from 28 to 36. So that means... For each kilogram of methane that a cattle emits, it will be multiplied by up to a 36 scaling factor because of the global warming potential. Why is that? That's, I mean, that's huge, right? 36x. So, I mean, if you, know, if you took the 4 to 5% of, of global emissions that's attributed to cattle and divided that by you know, 30, you'd be at a lot smaller number, less than, less than one, less than half a percent. Yeah. And, um, but why is that, you know? So methane and carbon dioxide are totally different gases from a fundamental characteristic standpoint. So carbon dioxide is what's called a, a stock gas, and it has an atmospheric lifetime of hundreds of years, you know, 300 to 1,000 years. So it has a much longer term impact. So that means any CO2 we're putting up in the atmosphere will stay up there for potentially up to a thousand years. Unless we draw it down with regenerative unless agriculture. We, yes, unless we sequester <laughs> it. Yes, exactly. Yes. And, and methane is what's called a flow gas. So it's a much shorter lived gas, but it has higher energy absorption um, when it is in the atmosphere. So the lifespan of methane in the atmosphere is typically around 10 to 12 years. So we're talking about, you know, potentially 30x shorter, shorter lifespan. Yeah. So unfortunately, the global warming potentials don't really play that into effect accurately or fairly, according to, you know, some of the, the leading researchers who are kind of open-minded. Um, Dr. Frank Mitloner from, from UC Berkeley is, is one of them. And, and, you know, people like him have stated that the, the global warming potential from the IPCC and the, the EPA, which this 28 to 36 uh, number is, is based on 100 years of time. And it says it does not consider the lifetime of carbon dioxide or sorry. Yeah, carbon dioxide enough and, and it unfairly uh, is scaled um, in the against methane. And... Uh, that also becomes more problematic when you start thinking about green tax or carbon taxes as well. So uh, researchers from Oxford University actually came up with a different calculation system called the GWP star or GWP asterisk. And basically, they take into account 
that, you know, shorter lifespan of methane. And when you compare that to temperature modeling, so I have this in the book, but when you compare it, each metric, the GWP, the standard one, and then the GWP star, um, and compare it to temperature modeling data, the GWP star performs much more accurately. And why is that? That's because methane, since it has such a short lifespan, it reaches like a steady state much faster. So if you want to take into account like cattle, if you have, you know, a 150 head cattle operation, but you don't change that number for 10 to 12 years, you just, you always have, you know, 150 head herd of cattle. You're not really, after 10 to 12 years, you're not adding any additional methane to the atmosphere. You're, you know, you're kind of reaching that steady state point a lot faster. However, you know, under a lot of these Paris Agreement, climate, carbon tax that are proposed, that will not be taken into consideration and they'll just be continued to be taxed even after that steady state time is reached. So if you inherit, you know, a, a large ranch or something and you're really not increasing the herd, you are going to be totally um, unfairly treated by, by any of these taxes or, or something like that from it's a gonna policy make, and- and it's going to make a big impact on a very small margins business in the first place. Exactly. I, I, that's, you know, as a, as a farmer and as a butcher, I mean, oftentimes you're looking at something between one and two and a half percent margins and yep. that's tight. It's Penny's business. And, and what's really interesting is in the United States, the cattle herd has decreased about 30% since the seventies. Well, yeah, uh, so, they're bad. They have saturated fat. Ansel Keys told us so. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> in reality, the carbon footprint due to the cattle herd in the United States has played probably no impact to recent temperature rises. Does it have an impact? Absolutely. But it's that delta that really matters, that, that change over time. And after 10, 12 years, because of the, the lifespan, that it totally is different than carbon dioxide from an industrial power plant, which can potentially stay up in the atmosphere for, you know, hundreds of years. And this, this is level one, right? We haven't even talked about the positive things, right? That regenerative farming, carbon sequestration, you know, I read about, you know, potential hydroxyl groups um, that can sequester methane that comes from, you know, different ruminant animals uh, as well recently. So the, Interesting. The, the benefit, yeah, yeah, this is a new area that, that I'm recently, int- methane carbon uh, sequestration is, is a whole yeah. new topic and, and uh, the natural methane cycle is, is not talked about. The natural carbon cycle is, but uh, how does methane have, you know, a specific part in, in that? Because it's totally different gases, right? So we're talking about, we need more accurate modeling and uh, yeah, this is apparently, you know, a hot debate in uh, the scientific community, as it should be. But I just fear that because the IPCC, they have such large influence and you can see how heavily plant-based their agenda is in all these governing bodies that it's, it's really a shame. And um, hopefully we can fight back with, with real education, real science that that is okay. fair. 
I think it's also important to recognize that within the plant-based model, you can centralize profits, that you have a, a food conglomerate, you know, this massive piece of control. And I mean, even Cargill is one of the biggest investors and in one of them. I never remember if it's Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger. Yes. You have Bill Gates. And so you can really centralize the profits to benefit the few in terms of that, but within regenerative agriculture, and I would actually argue within conventional livestock agriculture as well, you have a wider distribution of those profits across more people. And it is not centralized and owned by a single or a handful of entities. And I think that one of this, the biggest aspects of decentralization is taking the the profits and the control from the few and redispersing them throughout the many. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Cargill, JBS, you, you realize why are all these meat packers, you know, getting into plant-based foods? So why do you it's think about they, money. Don't, they don't care about the food? They just care about increasing their revenue and, and making more money and Bill Gates investing. And when you have more inputs and you have more of a you know factory uh, style setting, you know more ingredients. You need to build more factories or you know lab made meat. You need to build labs that you know create meat. Um, there's there's more money to be made, but it's such a waste of money to you know put up all these things and source all these ingredients. And that's that's really the the main issue. So it's it's never been about the health of the environment. It's always just been about profits. It, I, I completely agree. And one of the, you know, I like to put things through two sniff tests, the evolutionary biology sniff test, which we can put the entire emissions model of ruminants through, yeah. uh, as well as, you know, any of the aspects of saturated animal fats playing a role in human health and diet and the who stands to profit from this sniff test. And I think between those two, you can often uncover a lot of obfuscation that's happening in the greater realms of centralization. And, and so I think that's important to note that I do think that regenerative farming puts more money back in the hands of the people. I have, I have some deeper concerns about how difficult it is as a business, how tight margins it is as a business. And actually one of the, the questions I came in here with is like, can, do you think that there's an entry point where we can use Bitcoin or cryptocurrency as a way of creating, hmm, and this is tough, but, Let's try it out. It creating stability for farmers in a low margin business that they're holding this asset class that is appreciating and it's sort of hedging them against the, the volatility. And this is where it's tough because I think right now Bitcoin is pretty volatile. Uh, the volatility within the, the farming business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's I think the biggest um, hurdle, right? To to switching over to regenerative farming um, in general is yeah, how how much money um, will it cost, and am I going to be able to sustain that, pay my mortgage, you know, and, and actually market? So there there's a lot of things I think that that go into this, and there's some people totally doing it right. So so first before we get into Bitcoin, I mean, direct selling direct to your customer, you're getting yes. way more money. 
you know, these, yes, you, are. these I, I, you I'm, know, yeah, probably, I'm, right. <laughs> I know, I know because I'm, I'm a little screwed on that front in the butcher shop business. And I've spoken a lot about how I would not open up another butcher shop. And that yeah. this is the part of the problem is that we need that direct to consumer model. Yeah. But, but even, I mean, a local butcher shop is, is still nothing compared to, you know, the, the standard, um, you know, processors, you know, a rancher is selling wholesale then there's just distribution and then there's the process or yes. the processing, the distribution, the, you know, the packing and all that really, I mean, I, I don't know what the accurate percentage is, but I think the, the rancher's probably getting 70 to 80% taken out from what, uh, the end customers actually paying at the grocery store. They're getting cents on, on the dollar. Um, yeah. So in general, in the United States, just to speak to this, on average, between seven and 11 cents of every dollar that you spend at the grocery store goes back to the farmer. So you're about right. About 90% gets taken out. And so that's your loss. I know that at Western Daughters at my butcher shop, 50 cents of every dollar that you spend goes directly back to the farmer. Which makes it a really fantastic, fantastic, and a very difficult business model. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But either way, I think so. That's step one, and I think a lot of these farms have figured out how to do, you know, online marketing, social media, and transparency is the other great thing. Right? You can literally just, you know, have videos online of of your cattle, your your goats, your chickens, and people love visitors and visitors. You can go visit. They will pay uh, extra for that transparency, for that honesty, for that interaction. Which yes. so a you can you can charge a slight premium because it's higher quality. If you figure out how to do a direct to consumer uh, model, um, obviously you know processing transportation still probably hurdles to figure that out. That those are two major steps. And then if you have uh, a savings in a currency that is going to hold its value or appreciate value over time, you have that backup money to continue to allow your operation to maybe not only scale, but scale and prosper and and then reach more people or, um, you know, have a higher quality operation or try new things. You'll have more flexibility. You know, you'll be able to survive a bad year if you have that reserve currency that is sitting and appreciating as opposed to a dollar that it'll depreciating. So yes, I, I think, and that's not only goes for farming, it goes for anybody who wants to start a, you know, a small business. And uh, it's really a, an issue because right now what people do is, is they take out a lot of debt. They take out a lot of loans to be able to do these things, to be able to start a business, to be able to, you know, have a farming operation so they're indebted and when you become over leveraged in in debt and you don't have the cash flow to pay for it because something goes wrong the bank the bank owns you so that's the problem and um you know that's people don't just save in US dollars they take out the loans and then they pay the loans back slowly um if they can and uh that it really puts you in a really bad situation um, with the bank and, and with your loan, if something goes wrong. So instead, if uh, you have an asset that like Bitcoin, which you're slowly just putting small profits into over time, and that continues to appreciate uh, over, you know, against the US dollar over, you know, a five to 10 to 15, 20 year period, you're going to be able to have way more flexibility and improve your operation and keep it going. I mean, maybe you know, but I, I would 
guess a, a lot of farmers fail. I know that farmers that go bankrupt most often are ones that inherit their land because they don't actually know how to run it from a business perspective. It's like a hobby thing. So obviously you have to be committed on, on that end. I don't know that percentage off the top of my head, but yes, a lot of farmers fail. And even within the regenerative space, it's it's a hard business. And I think we've lost, I think you just spoke to something that's so vital. We've lost some of that generational knowledge of oh, yeah. how to do this. And so a lot of the the class of people that are entering regenerative farming don't i mean i, I hey i'm i'm from denver proper i'm from the city i i didn't grow up doing this and so there's a steep learning curve and when you couple that with the learning curve of how to run and maintain a business i mean that that gets even steeper and exactly. and so we're faced with that and with uh, a generation of mentors that are either not interested in regenerative farming or are getting too old to teach it. Yep. And it goes back to what I said earlier, right? If, if you have that opportunity to just put your savings in, in Bitcoin and it, knowing it will appreciate as opposed to being farmer by day, you know, figuring out how to, you know, take out the right loans or part-time investor by night. I mean, you're just not going to have the time to do that effectively, or you're going to have to pay someone else to do it, which is another expense. But yeah, overall, that's definitely important. And then the, the last thing, which I've seen more of, and I, I've been talking to um, his name's Texas Slim down in Texas. He's, he's d doing what's called a beef initiative, where he's setting up um, a system to pay your local ranchers with for their beef and, and meat in, in Bitcoin. And, uh, Interesting. Okay. It's, it's I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll put a show note in there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the beef initiative is what it's called. These guys are, are pretty big on, on Twitter. Um, so definitely check them out. I'm, I'm going to go down to, they're having a, a conference in Colorado, uh, Western Colorado, I believe in Campbell in July. So that's something that maybe we need to scale, um, to a, yeah. a national level is, you know, one is, is edu and it starts with the education of, you know, the consumer, why, you know, why yes. should they get Bitcoin? Why is it, you know, matter? And then rewarding your, you know, local farmers and ranchers uh, for providing such a valuable service of nutrient dense foods to you and your family by, by paying them in, in Bitcoin. Yeah. So, so that's something that's, that's really, really interesting cool that's going on. And I, I realized, you know, after writing this book, you know, I start talking to people and I'm like, wow, it's crazy how many people are interested in the same thing. And it all boils down to that mindset of, you know, and, and farmers and ranchers are like the easiest people to convince about Bitcoin because they're like, yeah, I don't, you know, I own this money. You know, this is hard money that I own. The bank can't tell me what to do with it. And, yes. you know, I have sole control over it. They're like, yeah, that's, you know, that sounds awesome. Like, sign me up. Yes. And I think farmers also tend to have a more long-term lens. Yes. And exactly. I, I think that's a really, that mindset is already embedded in that industry. Yes, exactly. So if anything, you know, the hardest part might be to get uh, Bitcoiners to, to spend their Bitcoin. But if it's rewarding, you know, uh, something as great as, you know, your local farmer and rancher, I, I think they'll they'll be open to that. But that's just an example of how we can kind of get creative, spread the buzz around both, you know, having regenerative farms, buying locally and uh, using sound money to do it. It's that's great. It's, it's great. I love that. 
I know we've been going for a while now. I have a couple of just kind of off the rails questions if you're if you're if you're down for that. I'm up but for it. <laughs> before that, is there any major things that we missed that you want to make sure to communicate? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, overall, right? My book, I, I wrote it about the fundamentals, the introduction of, of Bitcoin and beef. It's like a two separate kind of timelines in the first half of the book. And then it converges at, at the point of decentralization after, you know, the common criticisms are covered. And, and really, I mean, it starts with, here's what you need to know fundamentally about these items. You need to have an education to be able to criticize or defend something. So I want to give people factual firepower. I mean, there's over 300 sources in the book. There's a lot of facts. Like we talked to some about subsidies and and this methane stuff. I want you to have this resource to be able to defend something that you believe in, or I want to convince you that these are things that are worth fighting for and, and worth believing in. And the convergence at the end of decentralization kind of just goes into how much manipulation there is with the large corporations and governments through, you know, subsidies are one thing, lobbying, um, you know, media influence, you know, who's paying who. You can look all this stuff up and it's it's, yes. it's shocking. And uh, once you realize that everybody is, you know, paying everybody to say what um, they want to say, then you'll realize soon that it doesn't matter about left or right. It, it matters about or vegan or carnivore. It matters about fighting the system. So, we need to act together. We need to put aside diet wars. We need to put aside political ideologies and we need to work together on fighting what's right for the individual. And these large centralized systems are really stripping away our freedom and liberty as Gosh, citizens. I agree. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I think not just at the individual level, but at the level of the community that yes. this is work worth, worth finding bridges instead of finding how we're different and how angry this faction is at this faction. And I think that uh, that's one of my big goals with this is, is to build more bridges. And so I love that. I just, I, I have a couple of like burning questions that I've been dying to ask somebody. And so I'm just, I'm just going to Let's put you through this. <laughs> this question and i think this came up a couple of times throughout the podcast about volatility that that bitcoin is at this time a pretty volatile asset class and i think when i look at a traditional market model i see volatility as being tied to historically geo and socio-political tides supply and demand consumer behavior but what is the what is Bitcoin tied to in terms of its fluctuations? And we just saw a huge fluctuation this week. And where does that belief that this is going to be stable over time come from? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, it's definitely multifaceted. So let me start with the the first one that's it's very important is, you know, if you, if you look at the history of Bitcoin, it traded, you know, under $1 a coin, for a while and then you know it was in the tens of dollars range and and spiked up to you know three hundred dollars or so i don't have the chart up and then crashed down you know under you know twenty dollars but it was such a small asset class for a for a long time so so just recently it kind of became in the big boys class of you know one trillion dollar asset class and it's below that now again recently so when something is you know a smaller asset class you know back in 
you know, 2015 to 2016 and it went, and then in 2017, it went from, you know, being worth like a thousand a coin or below a thousand to about 19 to 20,000 at the peak. When something is smaller as, as a total market cap, it's just easier to, to move in terms of, you know, when a large investor steps into the game or a big surge of retail. So the, the, the cycle in 2017 was fully driven by retail investors. So all this hype around it and, you know, everyone and their, you know, mom, sister, brother are buying like, you know, a hundred, a couple hundred dollars worth. And you multiply that by, you know, a million people, a couple million people. And the market cap is, is pretty low. It can really drive the price up. And it's, it's a new technology, right? It, it has such a, a small history. So something that's new, the market cap is, is pretty low in the grand scheme of things. You know, it's easier to drive the price up. And a lot of it was, you know, a hype train for a while. People didn't really understand. There was no large institutional investors in the game. So that's what kind of drives the volatility up from, you know, the earlier perspective. And and then also, and, and that's kind of tampered over time. So, so you'll see from, from 2017 to 2018, we went from 20000 to down to $3,000 a coin. So that's over, um, you know, it's dropping over a sixth in price. Right now, we went from, you know, 70000 to 20000 or 69000 to 20000 And that is a little over a third uh, drop in price. And we may go lower, I don't know. But it's definitely, um, the volatility is, is definitely tampering or sh- uh getting smaller over time. And that's because it's becoming a larger asset class. So from that perspective, you will see decreased volatility over time because you have people who will absolutely just refuse to sell their Bitcoin. I mean, most long-term holders are just accumulating more on these drops. And the more and more people buy into the fundamentals of why it's such a superior form of money, the less people will sell at the time of fear. And right now, the, sure, reason, makes the, perso- the yeah. reason why we drop, oh, the reason why we rose so high since 2020 is because the expansion of the money supply. Um, you know, all assets, S and P 500, Nasdaq, they all went up absurd amounts yes. since uh, the COVID crash in March of 2020. And now, because of the Fed tightening and rising of interest it's a correction. rates, it's going back down. And Bitcoin, although it is uncorrelated with traditional markets at times. When the policy of, you know, the monetary policy is affecting everything like it is right now, it will be heavily correlated during, during these times. So it still has, um, you know, a lot of reason to, to follow the, the traditional markets because a lot of the traditional markets are, are fully based, um, on the, the monetary policy from the Fed. And that, you know, that could, the more and more people that, that get into it, uh, the more that will change as well. And overall, the, the correlation to traditional markets will, will likely go down over time. And it's still lower than any other asset class, really, although recently has been heavily correlated. So that's one thing or two things. And then the third thing is the miners that we talked about. So the miners, they're kind of like farmers. I mean, they have a pretty small margin for for operating and um in certain times because you know that volatility is so high still that 
when the price drops to kind of where it is right now, and, and there's, you know, people often use mining kind of break-even points to predict the bottoms of, of Bitcoin cycles because they can kind of calculate based on energy cost, based on hardware cost, what it takes to, you know, mine one Bitcoin on an average price basis. And once it gets closer to that point, which we're, we're getting close to that now, miners will be forced to to sell the Bitcoin that they have mined in order to keep going or else they will go bankrupt. So, you know, an efficient or, you know, a smart miner might, might try and sell maybe more at the at the top or they might just be holding and uh, Bitcoin is what they have. They don't, you know, they mine Bitcoin. So that's the money they have. They don't, they're not going to convert it to dollars or they have to convert it to dollars to get actual money to pay for other things, I should say. So that's the other thing that, that would be driving volatility in the space. So yes, it is high, but in reality, all other markets um, are pretty much just based on, you know, the, the monetary policy at, at this at this stage, right? So so is so is so is Bitcoin and these markets are, you know, so old and they've they have so much money invested into them that um, it's a totally different comparison. And like I said, I think as it goes on, um, you will definitely see a decreased volatility. But if you have that longer time horizon of, you know, I would say even four plus years, you're always in the green. So I, I wouldn't worry about it. If, if you're just trying to invest in it for a short profit, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons anyway. But those are some important dynamics that, that are affecting the volatility. That was, that was perfect. And that really answered something. I just have one more kind of strange question, but then you should read Charles Eisenstein's sacred economics and we should have a different conversation okay. about <laughs> like this idea of uh, monetary and financial systems as ecosystems and kind of mirroring nature. But one of my questions is actually kind of embedded in that is this idea of hoarding. Uh, and one of the things that you said when you talked about farmers is getting them to spend the Bitcoin. And one of the things that I considered here is, you know, 10% of the gold that's out there is used in electronics and the rest is hoarded. It's literally dug out of the ground and then put back into vaults under the ground. And I think that that has created a lot of that wealth disparity where very few own the majority and it's all tucked away and inaccessible. Are we doing that with Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a tough conversation. I would say in general, first off, that a lot of the people who did get in very early um, have may have a large amount of, of Bitcoin relative to people who are in it now, but a lot of them have lost it along the way, um, you know, traded it or sold it. I mean, there's not a lot of people who straight up just bought it in like 2012 and just haven't sold it since then. And honestly, if they do still have it, like props to them for, for still holding it through like three eighty percent plus turndowns. You know, you could say they, they saw the value and, you know, they're fully, you know, they got diamond hands. That's what we, what we say. So um, if they have that much conviction that Bitcoin is like the future of, you know, money and it's here to stay, good on them. But there's not a lot of people like that, to be honest, I would say. If anything, the problem um, is that a lot of these large exchanges have uh, where you can buy Bitcoin. They have a large amount, of course, 
But as we're seeing kind of recently, some of these exchanges are, are over leveraged and becoming insolvent. So yeah. uh, that, I think we saw that with Celsius this week. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. So <laughs> you're up to date on that. So so you can see they're going to make mistakes. Definitely not all these guys are going to be around in, in 10 plus years either because they get greedy, they make mistakes, and there's there's no U.S. government to, to bail you out of uh you being over leveraged in, in, in crypto, um, which is good. It's a cleansing of the market. And that's why bear it markets is. and volatility are good because it, it flushes out weak hands. It flushes out people who are only there to, to get quick, uh, rich quick. And it flushes out people who are over leveraged. And, and you can make the same argument for any recession. And if you try and prevent a recession by printing more money, it's really doing a disservice to the entire country because you're just bailing out businesses who are operating way above their means. And it is artificially suppressing inflation in the same way that subsidies artificially suppress the true cost of food. Like they are, they are one and the same. And I think that that is also an interesting parallel between these two things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's perfectly summed up and, and you get it. But uh, yeah, so are there a few entities that, that do have a large amount of, of holdings in Bitcoin? Um, yes, I would expect that to, you know, become more dispersed over time. Hmm. And there's that's always going to be, you know, more people who or people who have a large amount of, of the supply of, of some money. But um, there's also been a large amount of, of Bitcoin that's been lost. Um, people have, you know, passed away or lost their keys to their wallet. Yeah. There is people who are hoarding it because they have such a strong conviction. You know, I think there's absurd amount percentage of, of wallets that have just bought Bitcoin and never, never moved it, never sold it, nothing. So if anything, that should make you more bullish on it because out of that 19 million Maybe a couple million are lost forever, and then maybe you know another ten million are in the in the hands of people who straight up are not going to ever sell it or trade it for anything, unless maybe it's helping out a local farmer. But um, <laughs> that means the supply is actually way lower than than it really is the real supply. Hmm. So in yeah. terms of wealth, but in terms of wealth gap, you bring up a very very point good point on on wealth gap because I mean right now the wealth gap is larger than it's ever been in terms of the U.S. dollar because when we have... We just, I mean, we just saw the emptying of it. Like, we just, over the last two years, saw, I I mean, the complete gutting. But but why is that? It's because inflation is is really a tax on on the lower class and the middle class that doesn't have the majority of of their net worth in in assets. And, you know, uh, wealthy people, they probably, even if you're a multi-billionaire, you probably got at most like a million in cash, probably less in your bank yeah, account. Your liquidity is low. It's, it's low. That's why it's hilarious when people, you know, just go at these billionaires for paying more taxes and stuff like that because they, they don't have like all their money is in stock and uh, real estate. So it's not liquid. But the, you know, because the US dollar is not backed by anything and they continue to increase the supply of it, People with wealth have to put their money into things that are going to appreciate with the increase in money supply. So they're just trying to preserve their wealth. So all their money is tied up in assets uh, like real estate, um, like investments, stocks. And the person who's living paycheck to paycheck, they don't have any money. They don't have 
the means to invest a lot of money into assets because they're just trying to survive. And when inflation is, you know, double digit percentage, they're really hurting and they probably aren't getting a 10% raise at their job because that never happens. And, you know, corporations are over leveraged and they don't have the cash um, flow to, to give every one of their employees an inflation adjusted I raise. can't do it at my mom and pop shop. So that's really the wealth gap is, is uh, continuing to widen probably, you know, and it's just going to cause more social tension. We've already seen that it's probably only going to get worse. So Bitcoin, anybody can buy Bitcoin. There's, you could buy a hundred dollars worth. And if you bought, if you were early, you know, you could have been broke as hell, but if you believed in it and you put, you know, a thousand dollars into it in 2015 and you hold it to 2030, you are probably going to be very well off. So yeah, there there is going to be a gap between the large holders and the smaller holders, but there is this opportunity and it, it may be the biggest redistribution of wealth that's ever happened because it's there's no you know secret club, there's no minimal investment, which all these angel investors, these VC Guys, it's all BS. You have to have ten grand, hundred grand to you know be part of their cool kids club and and make millions. There's none of that. I mean, you just need to you know you could buy five dollars a day for the next five years, and anybody can do that probably. And you might be you know in the top five percent of Bitcoin holders in twenty years. Who knows? Um, Fascinating. So that's what Thank I would you. say. Yeah, it's thank I mean, you. It's not perfect, but there, the opportunity not. is there if you uh, want to pursue it. I appreciate you sharing your your perspective on this as somebody who's coming to this with no idea. Uh, it, that was a really thank you for entertaining those two questions. I'm excited to circle back after you read this book. <laughs> but last question that I ask every guest, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? For me, and I think it, it ties back to kind of why I'm so passionate about these topics and, and why I wrote this book is it really can make a substantial difference on the quality of, of people's lives if they have the education about how our food and health systems are actually func functioning, how our monetary system functions, and how they can make changes in, in their life to be on the good side of that or, or the providing end in terms of reaping the benefits of what our bodies are capable of, what our earth and environment is capable of, what our community is capable of. And uh, yeah, these two things, money and health, are probably the most two important things in, in, in your life. And unfortunately, you do need money to, to some degree to, to be happy. Um, you don't need a lot of it, but you need a money that is going to work for you and not against you. Um, and that's where Bitcoin provides solace to people because they have an opportunity to just save in an appreciating asset as opposed to working uh, with an asset that, that's only going to hurt them in, in the long run. So laying the, the groundwork for me is, is putting out education, connecting with like-minded individuals like yourself is, is really rewarding and uh, I hope to, you know, continue to do this and, and give back to the community and educate as many people as possible so they can have a higher quality um, life for their themselves and, and their friends and family. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? We'll have full links in the show notes to socials, but where can people find you the most? 
The most, yeah. So um, I have a personal Instagram uh, uh, at Tristan underscore health. Uh, just post, you know, insights to to my daily living lifestyles, and then also have a separate Instagram for the book at Bitcoin and Beef, and then also uh, stepping up my my game on Twitter because that's where a lot of the the Bitcoin. Yeah, that's where live. it is. Uh, that's where all the Bitcoiners are, and that's Bitcoin and underscore beef. Uh, the logos are are on there for for the book, and uh, yeah, the the book is out now on Amazon. So please check it out. It, I think it'll really be a, a tool for you as well if you're already familiar with these topics, and if not, you'll definitely learn some things. I know I did researching and writing. I definitely it. did. And uh, yeah, please leave a review as, as well, because that helps the Amazon algorithm. And hopefully we can just educate as, as many people as possible and continue to, to build a community here. I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at GroundworkCollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>